I'd like to take a moment and thank our sponsor. If you have a laser device for training and you want to take it to the next level, or if you're looking to get into using a laser device for training, check out the products at laserapp.com. L-A-S-R-A-P-P.com. You can use code CSP2021 for 15% off the items you've selected. And thanks for checking them out. Welcome to this week's episode of the Casual Shooters Podcast. Unlike the last three, four, six, seven, I don't know how many, I actually have a co-host today. Everybody welcome Leo. I do exist. He does. Um, Chris is still, you know, absent, but huggy, but it's all good. Um, before we bring our guest on real quick, I wanted to say, well, what did you what did you think of the hoist drink? Oh, I, I bought a bunch. The reason I ask is I have now at the Virginia State match last weekend, I heard some success stories and I saw one. Boom. So, so shout it, out to Hoist. Yeah, no, shout I bought out a bunch to Hoist. Using our code, was it Casual Shooter Podcast? The code? It just right? Casual Shooter. Oh, Casual Shooter. I, yeah, I bought, I, it ended up being $90 because it saved 10%. Um, but yeah, I got a, uh, case and then a bunch of the powder ones okay awesome yeah so if you're listening and you have hydration issues definitely get some hoist that stuff works for real legit yep well this week um speaking of virginia state match i was at that match and i look over and i'm like oh look it's an air force shooter wait a minute and i look back behind me because i saw nick fralick and i'm like their jerseys look completely different i'm like this is really odd why is Nick's jersey completely different from this other individual who meets the height requirement for production national champion? And, oh, okay. Um, so above six foot. Yeah. He's like, I'm going to guess five foot 16. Got it. That's what I'm going with. Um, so I was like, you know what? Me being the shy person I am, I went right over to him. And I'm like, uh, excuse me. Hi, this is who I am. Uh, I noticed that your jersey is different. So anyway... Ran into another Air Force shooter, um, not an action shooting team member, but he shoots on another team. He shoots small bore and international rifle. And I was like, we got in a little bit of a conversation, started talking about things, very unique background, lots of information, traveled Europe shooting these matches and stuff. So I was like, you know what? We've got to have you on the show. So... That is our guest this week. He's a lieutenant colonel in the United States Air Force. Um, So let me go ahead and bring him on. His name is Robert Davis. Hi, Robert. How are you? Doing well. How are you guys doing? Doing quite well ourselves. I assume you heard the intro there? I did. Yes. Okay. All right. If you would take a moment and just introduce yourself for the audience. Okay. I'm Robert Davis, and I'm the team captain for the Air Force International Rifle Team. And I've been shooting competitively since 1993. Nice. I won't tell you how old I was. <laughs> yeah. Not very. <laughs> what, 10, 11? Nine. Oh, okay. I was close. Well, I was at, close. Least, at least you were born, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Okay, before we get into our, our normal questions on where we start, since you mentioned that... Um, was that brand new in the Air Force, or were you shooting before the Air Force? 
Oh, before the Air Force. So I started shooting rifles when I was about six years old with my dad. And then in middle school, when it looked to see, you know, like what high school I was going to go to, my dad was all excited because he's like, oh, your high school's got a rifle team. And apparently they're pretty good. And so I shot in the Army JROTC rifle team for the four years of high school. And I'll, I'll never forget the coach back then or like the senior military official we had for JROTC. He, he ran the rifle team. And he told me that because I had prior shooting experience, because there was like tryouts, right, for that, that first year. And he said because I had prior shooting experience, he didn't think I'd be any good. And ended up having, out of like the 10 people trying out, um, I had the tightest shot group. We just plopped down like on a, a bench and shot at 50 meters or sorry, 50 yards um, or 50 feet even actually. I think, yeah, JRTC is 50 feet. Um, and we shot like, you know, 10 or 15 shots with a 22 small bore and I uh, had the tightest group. So I was pretty happy about that. But I, I know what he meant. My dad was really offended by that remark when I came home and told him that. He's like, you said you were going to be the worst. <laughs> yeah. Um, he thought you had a lot of bad habits. <laughs> bad habits. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, Robert, how we normally start this is we have five questions um, that we start with. They're personal questions to get to know the guest. And the first one we usually go with is what's your favorite movie? My favorite movie? Well, that's a hard question because I'm a huge movie buff, a really huge movie buff. And I think it like face value, like if, if we talk about like all the technical and story aspects of a film that I really enjoy. I'd probably say Titanic actually um, because I'm a big James Cameron fan as well, but a film that I can watch repeatedly like over and over again would actually be Terminator two, which kind of explains what I never uh, would have guessed why you had yeah, 1000 right? sitting so, behind you. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Terminator you, two you, was, was really the first film that really kind of got me into movies and wanting to collect things from movies and, and news clippings and all that. And, um, it, it manifests in this day into, uh, you know, life-size statues. This is one of, of three life-size uh, Terminator 2 things that I have. So, Wow. I'm so jealous right now. Yeah, that's impressive. All no right, kids, so for those if you... anyone's wondering. This is me and my wife. So, and she's <laughs> she's uh, really awesome. So, I was about, You must have, I mean, listen, I love my wife. I would be willing to say your wife is cooler than mine. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's okay. Shit, I'm listening to this show. So <laughs> well, there you go. Yeah, yeah. My yeah, my uh, wife really enjoys a lot of the stuff that I collect too, and and um, she she doesn't she says she doesn't have like a sense of decoration, so she's actually really happy with uh, the movie posters and collectibles and stuff that we have up around the house. So I might right, I so might cry you... a little bit. Yeah. <laughs> all, all I can say out there, my advice is marry well. You know. So. <laughs> well, he he's already married twice. So yeah. I can't. Well, it's too one... expensive now. <laughs> there you go. I love you, baby. Just kidding. <laughs> so, for those of you uh, that don't normally watch YouTube, make sure you go to our Instagram page because the thumbnail advertisement for this episode will have the background of what we're talking about in there, so you can see it. All right. So, question number two: favorite book. My favorite book. Well, I'll break that up into two. So I would say at, in a fiction category, there's a book by Philip Nutman that came out years ago called Wet Work. And it's, a, it's about like this sort of like spy zombie novel. And it, it was pretty, pretty unique for its time. I mean, now we live in the age of Walking Dead. So zombies are kind of a dime a dozen. But 
he wrote this back in the early nineties and it, it was fascinating. It was sort of like a Tom Clancy meets zombies sort of mashup. And uh, it's something that I find myself reading every few years. And then from a nonfiction perspective, I would say with winning in mind by Lanny Bassam. Okay. Um, it's a fantastic book. I've recommended that to so many people uh, over the years and I, I you know, found it life changing as well. Do you, did you find an affinity for or an, um, an increased affinity for it because he shoots what you shoot. I, I think so. Um, but that particular book I've actually sent to friends that have never shot before or have, you know, very little interest in, in shooting, uh, because he tells you at the beginning of the book that the principles that he outlines, you know, obviously they apply to shooting, but he says, you know, they can work for so many other things that you're trying to do or accomplish in your life. The, the whole mental management thing. And I, I think that's, that's so interesting and so important. And I love the example he gives you at the beginning of his book to, sh you know, to kind of give you proof of, of what he's talking about with remembering people's names. Cause I tried that and then suddenly I'm great at remembering names. It, yeah, it's it's, it's interesting book. because that, that book and, and he have come up on this show. I mean, definitely more than a handful of times. So hmm. I, I will probably talk about this later at some point, but I'm also one of the few active duty coaches for the Air Force Wounded Warrior Program, which has nothing to do with the Wounded Warrior Project. I, I know they sound similar in name, but this is actual uh, official Air Force entity for, for wounded warriors, both on active duty and mil medically retired. And that particular book uh, I promote to the athletes all the time. And it's so great to have them come back. I've had multiple athletes I've been doing this for six years now come back and say, you know, I read that book and it's helped me so much, not, not only just trying to teach them in shooting, but, but also in, in their recovery. Yeah, that's awesome. Uh, we have in my, my old first due for the department, we actually have one of their, uh, or at least a tangential organization, one of their houses for recovery when they have surgeries down here in um, either Bethesda or uh, DeWitt. So they have a house out here where they kind of convalesce and the families can hang out so they can uh, go and see them when they're in the hospital during, during recovery. Is it so the Fisher house? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. The, they've come by the station a whole bunch of times and we give them tours and hang out and talk to them and stuff. Oh, that's great. Yeah. The yeah. Fisher house is a very big sponsor for uh, the warrior games in general, uh, yep. which, which like every service has their own uh, wounded warrior program and what it all kind of culminates into outside of just like the regular uh, recovery aspects that you might run into, but the, the sports, the adaptive sports part of it all culminates into uh, warrior games, which is sort of like a military Paralympics. Mm -hmm. And, and yeah, every year Fisher house comes out uh, during the opening ceremonies. Uh, I, I can't remember the, the guy that runs it. His name escapes me, but he'll come out and, and talk. And, and uh, now that you've said it, I, I cannot right, recall right, who yeah. he is. If you'd asked me like, five yeah. minutes ago, I could tell you, but now I forgot. Yep. So. Yeah, it's a pretty cool program. Welcome to being closer to my age. <laughs> yes. Yeah. <laughs> Number three, and this are the third co-host who isn't here. His favorite question to ask people is who is your favorite superhero? It's not really a superhero, but it's probably the only comic book character that I, I gravitated towards when, when I was younger, and that's the Punisher. So, which now is you know, everyone and their mother has like, you know, a little Punisher sticker on any and every little thing, you know, I'm, right. I'm sure Marvel's still kind of mad about all the money they probably lost out on licensing just because it, it just, it's so, uh, you know, ubiquitous everywhere. Um, but, uh, the, the original like Marvel, like eighties and nineties, uh, uh, character that they had for him. And I know he's been through a lot of iterations since then. Um, I, I enjoyed that. 
And I, I really wanted to enjoy the Netflix series. So I kind of liked how they introduced him in Daredevil, but I, I just, I couldn't get into the, uh, the Netflix series. I mean, I, I think that, um, uh, I call it kill. I mean, What's his name? Shane. I mean, I call him Shane from Walking Dead, but uh, John Berenthal. Yeah. yeah. Uh-huh. John right. Berenthal. Like, um, you know, I, I liked him as, as that character, but I the way they portrayed him and the stories in, in the series, it just didn't do it for me. Which is sad because he actually is a pretty good actor. I just watched him uh, on Hot Ones where they eat uh, progressively hotter wings while they get asked questions. Oh, we yeah. We should yeah, probably yeah. start doing that, Dave. Make people eat hot wings while we ask them questions. That's actually not a bad idea. Just saying. We have to, we have to overnight them so they have the ones we Fine. want them to have. Though. You, yeah. you know, I, because you're a shooting podcast, though, I would actually recommend that you somehow do these interviews on the range and have people shoot hotter and hotter loads and, like, work them up and then, you know, to, like, a 500 Smith & Wesson and they cry uncle. And I mean, listen, I, the biggest one I have is a 300 Win Mag. So, <laughs> yeah. That'll do it, too. Like you need to you buy a, a bigger caliber. Leo. I mean, he's not wrong. So speaking of hotter and hotter guns, what is your favorite gun in caliber? My favorite gun, and I'm going to go with this to a class because I, I have many variants of it. I'm a big fan of the, all the different variants, but my, my favorite gun is probably the MP5. I first shot an MP5 Ooh. when I was nine years old, uh, years and years ago, because my dad was involved with some folks that uh, all had the... Uh, well, they were actually dealers at the time uh, for uh, NFA weapons. And we used to go to like machine gun shoots. And, and at one point, um, the local news station wanted to do a story on on shooting. And, and they had me uh, come out and, and shoot this MP5. So we went down to my, our neighbor's house and he showed me how to take it apart and, and put together and, and, and shoot it. And I shot like some clay, clay birds uh, with it. And I was just so impressed, like how accurate it was, even when I was nine years old. And uh, they got some footage and stuff for, you know, for the local news and uh, just in my mind that that stuck with me to this day is I'm just such a fan of, of that platform. And, you know, it's obviously gone through a midlife improvement program in the last few years. So they're, they're still squeaking out a, a you know, a little more life out of a 50 year old plus design. Um, but I, yeah, I love the MP5. And as far as the caliber, I would say you can get nine millimeter because it goes along with that. And I know that they've done MP5s and 10 millimeter and 40 as well. But uh, nine millimeter, I think, is, is a fantastic caliber. And I think that we're obviously seeing a resurgence of it, uh, especially like in the law enforcement military side in the last few years after, you know, 40 cal was the the go to caliber for for so long. And then people just like, you know, have, eh, well, maybe I can get, you know, some good performance out of nine millimeter. And obviously people do now with uh, improvements in manufacturing and ammo. But uh, yeah, does that answer your question? Yeah, it does. And, and I can't fault you one bit. That is probably the funnest gun I have ever shot in my life. And even for being 50 years old, that thing functions way better than I do. So yeah, I actually brought one to show. Ooh, that's the funnest it. gun I've ever looked at. Yeah. <laughs> so nice. This is the, the BNT stock. It's a new stock again, like, you know, mid-level or sorry, midlife improvement program type stuff. Um, but this okay. stock's really great. Cause I took my office out a few weeks ago to shoot and, um, people of, you know, different shapes and sizes and all that. And having a collapsible stock like this was a, a fantastic option to, to run um, just to accommodate all those, all those different folks. And I have the, um, I have the, uh, the a five stock that they did um, a while wow. back as well. This is actually MP five SD, but yes, it is. I will say that this particular stock, um, it looks good. 
it makes the gun look nice and it's kind of fun, but it's not fun to shoot. Like I, I enjoy like other, like the B and T stocks or even like the uh-huh. old A2 stock uh, on MP5s um, shooting it. Um, but you know, for like range day or take pictures or whatever, this is, a, this is a really nice stock, but just, it's really complicated too. Like if you don't ever try to take it apart because you'll never get it back together. Like they have uh, special jigs and stuff like that uh, at HK factories to be able to reassemble these things. And um, it's just too complex. The, the BNT one is, is nice and easy. And, and again, it's just a, has a lot more flexibility and it's also yeah, the BNT one's easier to pull out um, than the, um, the, uh, the A5 one that they did. Those, I, I tell you when, I can buy a, a, a Ford and MP5 and USPSA will let me shoot it. I will switch to PCC because <laughs> that is the only gun I would want to shoot PCC. There's a guy that shoots it like up at Shadowhawk that shoots an MP5. Derek Giddings on the HK shooting team. He actually um, runs uh, MP5 as well. And, and I've run him out. It's still challenge. And uh, also at, um, with USPSA before, I mean, they're allowed um, on there. Um, but a, if you're if you're talking like a um, well, like an SP5 that you want to like SBR or something like that, that probably would be the one of the cheaper options to go. Um, I got into this uh, full bore, if you will, with a, a registered SEER um, a few years ago. Some people come back from a deployment and they buy a car, and a car lasts a few years, and you know then they trade it in or whatever. And I decided that I was going to buy a machine gun, and uh, I'm glad I did because at the time I thought the price was already outrageous as it was. Right. And I'm like, I, you know, but I also was looking at the the trajectory of the pricing going up since 2011, um, even mm-hmm. before that. And I thought if I don't jump in this now, I'm never going to be able to afford this. And so, uh, you that, should really talk to my wife. Yeah. Yeah. You, <laughs> I've tried no that logic like before. So, um, it's, it's gone up, I think about 18 grand more than what I paid already. Um, just in, it's like Bitcoin. S- yeah, it is like Bitcoin. Yeah. I mean, you know, I'll, I'll never forget my, my dad was was a dealer. He was not a, um, I'd use the term class three dealer, but he, he didn't sell uh, NFA type stuff. And he would tell me when I was a kid, when you go out to these machine gun shoots and they'd be like, oh yeah, I want to get a machine gun. I wish you get a machine gun. And he goes, no, it's just a waste of money. And they, you know, it takes too much ammo. And he's like, they're so expensive now. And I look at the prices back in the 90s, you know, sometimes you see ads and stuff like that of what uh, NFA stuff was going for. And it's just, you know, that would have been an amazing investment. Do you remember when gas was a dollar? Right. It's right. like that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Burgers were 10 cents. I, 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 I tell you, Robert, I was at Quantico in the early 90s and we had an HK rep come out. He brought out a um, an MSG... 90 a psg1 um h we already had mp5s in our cage in the armory right but he also brought out a pdw oh yeah and and at 100 yards so i'm standing on the 100 yard line i'm like all right hold on i'm gonna cough let me i'm like all right short barrel i'm gonna aim high now i was we were shooting at an nra six foot by six foot carb cardboard target. So I'm like, I'm going to aim at the top because I'm not really sure where. So I was aiming about three to four feet, I guess about three feet above the center. And I fired a bunch of rounds. I looked up and they were all right where I aimed. I was like, well, <laughs> maybe I should have just held straight on. Yeah. 
Yeah. So I was surprised uh, with with a K because I have a K and a a PDW as well. And um, it's easy. You can hit, uh, you know, steel targets, body size targets at a hundred yards with them. Um, People just don't think about it because, you know, it's a pistol caliber, but um, beyond that, beyond a hundred yards, a hundred meters, like I I wouldn't have a lot of confidence in, in the platform. But uh, anything, you know, working uh, w- within those ranges, I-, I think, would be just fine. Um, there's a, a course that I've, I've done several of, and I'm, I'm going to go do it here again in a few weeks uh, with a company called Teufelschun Tactical. That he, he runs an advanced MP5 operators course. And that's one of the drills, too, is they, they stack you up at the 100-yard line and you work back every 10 meters um shooting like as, as, a, as a team and just you know continuing to hit the same target and then when you get back to the 100 yard line um you know, you're still hitting that that same target but it, it, he, he does that as, as like a psychological drill to show you that it is possible it's no problem like a bounding overwatch type of a oh no no not like that so so you just line up and and it peel off oh. you shoot peel off it, once you get, get the hit oh, okay. you peel off and um yeah, it's it's a great drill, and, and that that opened my eyes too. Because I, you know, if, if he would have started you out at the hundred yard line and said, "Hey, hit that steel," you know, I think most people would have been intimidated or wouldn't. Oh, I couldn't do that, but by by you starting out close, you keep hitting the same target as you're working back. Um, it, it builds a lot of confidence. And and also, right. I, I do use the uh, the guns competitively too. I'm shooting a uh, submachine gun match next weekend in Redbrush, Indiana, or Redbrush Range, I think is what it's called. Wow. I'm shooting one next weekend too in CMP in Talladega. Nice. <laughs> but it's not a sub gun. Yeah. I, you know, when, when we met, I, I told you that finding sub gun matches is a little bit hard. Um, this weekend, of course, at uh, in Knob Creek in West Point, Kentucky, they're having the, the very last big machine yes. gun shoot ever um, at Knob Creek. And they always have matches there too. And that was my first experience shooting it um, in a match about four maybe five years ago doing that. And then when I lived uh, down in Georgia, uh, down in Florida, actually, or close to the border of, of Florida, uh, I was able to shoot uh, pretty regularly submachine gun matches out there. There's, um, I think it's Port Malabar is the range on the, on the eastern part of Florida. They have uh, regular uh, subgun matches, and, and they're great. They're a lot of fun. Wow. Yeah, that, that would be, those would be fantastic. Now, when we were talking, and we talked about Knob Creek, um, you told me why this was the last one, and I didn't know why. So if you would, let the audience know why this is Knob Creek's last big hurrah. Well, it, it'd be a bit of conjecture on my part, because I don't know if they've officially um, come out and said, this is why we're stopping. But just talking to people in the community, from what I've heard, is that it just has become too cumbersome to run um, every year. Um, and... Yeah, I'll, I'll just leave it at that, that it's become more of a beast okay. uh, than they're, they're willing to run. Um, and I, I think that maybe also they're, they're looking at it from the aspect of, of, you know, how much effort they have to put into it. And they, they, they run that as a normal range from what I understand, um, you know, every year or day to day as it is. So they probably make plenty of money just doing that, just being a, a range in that area and, you know, want to focus on that. Um, it's like an icon, though. You know, it's sad to see it. Even though yeah. I've never participated, I still... It's kind of sad to see it go. It'd be like, um, you know, Camp Perry's national matches going away. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, you know, I, I wouldn't 
it wouldn't surprise me. And, and again, this is just uh, my opinion, but it wouldn't surprise me if it doesn't come back in like five years or something, you know, kind of like rock bands when they're like our final tour, <laughs> we're going away, you know, like and right. everyone rushes to it because it's like, Oh, it's their final tour. Knob Creek says, Hey, this is the last shoot we're ever going to do. You can, I can almost guarantee you that, you know, they have sellout weekends going or a sellout weekend for that, you know, saying that, um, so it, it, yeah, it wouldn't surprise me if, if someone at, at their company later decides that, Hey, let's bring it back. That, yeah, that would be good. It, it just seems like we're losing more stuff than we're gaining. So I hate to see anything go away. So what match were you shooting today? I was shooting a USPSA level one match here on Quantico. Oh, okay. You're here at Quantico. Yeah. All right. And uh, today I shot a, um, I shot in the limited category because I learned just a few days ago that I can actually shoot my BP9 SK with a light in the limited category. The last time I checked this about a year ago, I couldn't. So I had to shoot this, or I've been shooting this um, both in Steel Challenge and, and USPSA in the open class because it has a light on it. And that was really the only class that I could find that I could run a light on it um, without having like weights or, or whatever um, inside of it. But um, the rules now uh, say that you can have an unlimited category, um, a light. And you're probably going to ask me, well, why don't you just run production? Because production allows lights now too. And that's a great question. And unfortunately, USPSA it, on their, their rules for production say that you must use a production approved gun. And would you know it, the VP9, the VP9L, the, you know, the long slide version, are both approved variants to use. The VP9SK, the subcompact model, is not. Hmm. So, you know, of course, they do offer the option for you to uh, apply to, you know, to try to get something approved that, that's not on the list. But um, the, the USPSA and the Steel Challenge stuff that I do, I do a lot of it, but it's just more cross-training for me. So I'm not, I'm not so like, oh, I've got to, you know, I'm so into this and I'm here to, you know, dominate the field or anything like that. Um, in fact, I specifically was looking for something that wasn't race gun related because I already come from a sport that uh, is very specialized and we have a lot of, you know, very special like race. Well, not really race, but, um, you know, very specialized gear, leather jacket and, and our pleather. Well, it's, it's canvas. I guess it's a canvas is, is kind of the, the material it's made out of and uh, special uh, sites and, and all the, all that stuff. And I brought, um, today, my air rifle, because uh, I don't have my small bore available, unfortunately, um, it's okay. actually getting rebarreled at the moment. So I don't have anything okay. to show you in that regard. All right. Hang on to that because we're, we're about to start going that way. Because my next question was going to be, I want to go back in time. And so you shot in high school right. on a rifle team. Did you shoot in college? I did. I did. What and it was unusual was because... I, I went to Texas Christian University in Fort Worth. Oh, TCU, and yeah. If you, if you know anything about TCU, you might know that they're very famous for having a uh, women's only rifle team. I have heard that. And I had the pleasure of belonging to a uh, way long ago defunct club now um, that used to shoot there on Wednesday nights. There used to be like a league, a Fort Worth uh, air rifle um or I guess it was rifle leagues. I think we shot some small boy there too, but it was a league that would go on every Wednesday night. And a friend of mine that was a shooter in high school, uh, she would drive me there like every, every Wednesday night while we were in high school and we'd go shoot there. And that kind of 
I think that sort of influenced my decision to, to go to TCU because I knew that they had a range and I, you know, I knew the, uh, the lay of the land there. But yeah, it's a, it's a conundrum, right? You get there and you can't shoot because you're the wrong sex. So what do you do? So I, you identify as the other, no comment. Um, so (laughs) I, uh, you were there too early. I I created a thing called the, uh, the TCU rifle club. And that suited my purposes throughout all four years of, of being in school. We got a little bit of funding from the school and I was able to, to shoot there or have a purpose to be there on the range to train. And the coach was, was fine with that. Um, it, it took a bit of time though, cause I, to, to keep the club going, I'd have to bring in like, you know, recruits and try to show them the ropes. And it was kind of a balance of finding, making sure I had time to practice, but then trying to show some new people the, the sport as well. But yeah, that's, that's how I did it. Almost like being the coach and getting your practice in as well. Yeah. 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 But it, it was a great yeah. experience. Um, so it sounds like you grew up in that area too, then. I did. I'm originally from Garland, Texas, which is the oh, okay. scandalous country star Leanne Rhymes. And the cartoon show King of the Hill is based on Garland. There we go. Dad, can I put a gun rack on my bike? I was I was born in Dallas County Memorial Hospital, which okay. is no longer there. I have been to Texas. <laughs> That's a start. I got stuck at an airport there once. My buddy had to come pick me up. Thankfully, I knew somebody in Texas. Yeah. I was on a flight back from New Mexico. And it was when that guy burned him, like, conflagrated himself at Southwest, uh, the tower. Like, he burned himself alive in Chicago, like the hub of Southwest. So they shut down all flight. This was a couple years back. Okay. So they shut down all the flights. So I'm sitting there in the airport in Texas, and I'm like, it's 3 in the morning. I don't think I'm getting a flight anytime soon. So I'm like, hey, Sean, uh, can you come pick me up? He's like, I just got off of work. He's a police officer. It's like, I just got off of work. I'll be there in 10. <laughs> and then they're like, Perfect oh, your timing. next flight's at 6. I'm like, okay, I'm going to take a two-hour nap, and then can you drive me back to the airport? <laughs> That's a friend. That's that, a friend. I, yeah. lo- I mean, I am his daughter's godfather, so oh, okay. Yeah. if he had that not, I'd have been pretty, pretty upset. And her Christmas gift would have been horrible. <laughs> <laughs> That's not true. Love you, Lenore. <laughs> All right, so you, so you went to TCU, you shot there, and then I assume you uh, joined the Air Force at the end of your university time. Right, right. So after um, summer of 2001, yeah, I commissioned into the Air Force. And prior to that, I had been in contact with a guy that, as far as I knew, he was the Air Force shooting team, or he was like the, the focal point for the Air Force shooting team. I found his name from someone else that had retired out that, that knew. And, and I was very confused about the process at the time because I didn't understand in the service, like how you can go and do assignments for other services um, or have jobs, you know, working for another service. Cause at the time he was said he was in the air force shooting team, but he was like the coach at West point. And I was like, mm. you know, I was trying to wrap my brain around that, but it, it was just one of those things that he, he was able to get an assignment. You know, they were looking for an active duty coach and I guess it was open to all services and he, he went and, and took a job at, at West Point being the coach. And I kept in touch with him, and I, I was very fortunate for my first assignment. I was based in Colorado Springs, which is where the Olympic Training Center is located, that does this style of special shooting that, that I've been doing. And uh, he uh, Doug Clark was his name. Uh, he flew out uh, to one of the big air gun matches they had out there and, and um, uh, 
uh, it was great to finally kind of you know put a name with a face and meet him and by the end of that uh, that match he threw a hat on my uh, like a shooting team hat on my back and uh, that was it i was in the team so oh wow that's pretty cool. But you didn't do ROTC in college, though. I did. I did. Oh, okay. But, but ROTC has nothing to do with uh, shooting right, uh, competitively right. in college. Now, I, I think there are some some unaffiliated or loosely affiliated, you know, shooting teams. I, I think the Air Force Academy even has a um, like like a combat pistol shooting team or something like that. But but by and large, like the ROTC program has nothing to do with uh, competitive shooting, whereas JROTC does. Right. And I that's more that, too, because yeah. like when I started in JROTC, we were shooting small bore um, and air rifle. And uh, within a few years, they got rid of all the small bores. Uh, we only used them for like uh, turkey shoots. My high school had turkey shoots in the school. It's pretty cool. Um, but now I think most uh, JROTC programs have just kind of have gone to the sporter platform uh, for a lot of their competitive shooting. And there still are some like they call precision air teams uh, out there, but but for the most part it's sporter, but I'm just glad they still have shooting teams in some high schools. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Could use a few more. I noticed uh, when I was doing research for talking to the Navy action shooting team, Annapolis has shooting teams. The Academy does. So hmm. that was pretty interesting. Yeah. Yeah. All the service academies um, have, except for the Coast Guard, I think have um, a shooting team um, like an NCA level shooting team and i'll, I'll yeah. tell you that the there's a disconnect when i go out and shoot small bore matches um or even air rifle matches and people see me you know wearing an air force a shooting team shirt and they they look at me and they're used to excuse me they're they're used to um collegiate shooters because large majority of people that, that do the style of shooting anymore at least in america are, are collegiate shooters or high school <coughs> excuse me and they look at me as, as, oh, he's, he's in the Air Force. He must be at the Air Force Academy. And I can't tell you how many people still come to me at these matches and like, oh, you're at the Air Force Academy. So I'm, I'm grateful that I still look like a college student, I guess, to some folks. But uh, it's, <laughs> it's so weird every time I have to explain that. Like, no, I've, I'm about to retire from the Air Force. You know, I'm, I've been in like 20 years. Um, ver versus like going to Steel Challenge, USPSA matches and all that. People don't ever ask me if, if I've been, you know, in college or if I'm still a collegiate shooter. They're just like, they just accept me. Oh, you're with the Air Force. Oh, okay. You know, it's just, it's a, such a, it's a funny di dichotomy between uh, the two disciplines. Yeah. Wow. Uh, so you're, he throws a hat on your gear. You're now an Air Force, you're on the Air Force team. Right. Um, but you're a, I'm, I'm assuming at this point, a brand new second lieutenant. Right. So where is your first duty station? And is that, was that even convenient for shooting? Yeah. Yeah. It was Colorado Springs. Um, oh, that's, what okay. said, that's where like the Olympic training center was. Oh, uh, it was okay. at Peterson air force base now space force base, I believe. And it, yeah, it was just a great location to be in because uh, obviously you can be stationed some places that it would be near impossible to find a range that does uh, that sort of specialized shooting. So it, it was very, very lucky to uh, to have a place and i could go and train at, at the olympic training center and i trained at the air force academy as well while i was up there um and it was just great to have you know again that opportunity to to, to have the, the right setup or the right configuration of the ranges for what i needed to do 
are you trying to say Minot doesn't have a plethora of ranges like that? See, you, you laugh about that, but uh, I was in LA earlier this week uh, for a retirement for a buddy of mine that's on the Air Force shooting team. And he actually got his start when he, he was up there. And he got his start because he went to a library one day, bored, and found a book on position rifle shooting. And he's, he just fell into it. And I, I'm still to this day baffled, like how someone does that in someone, someplace so desolate, it doesn't probably have the style of shooting like mine not. But then he kind of linked up with a, a right guy that, that let loan him out some gear and, and he just, he fell, fell in love with it and uh, has been doing it ever since. And even now that he's retiring, he's going to keep shooting uh, the style of shooting. He just loves it. Love, you know, love of the sport, but, uh, but yes, at a library in mine not. Wow. Well, I guess I should have made a joke about there? my not. What's that? <laughs> they have libraries there. They do. They do. I, I don't do know something. if uh, anyone under 30 knows what those, those uh, facilities are anymore, but uh, they do have those. That's where people go and use the internet, right? It used to be, but now everyone's <laughs> got internet on their phone. So I, I don't know, like internet cafes, do they yeah. still even exist? Maybe some parts of Europe cafes. Yeah. So you and I were talking as well. Now you spent some time in Europe and what, so how, how were you able to get your rifles? Because as we've discussed on the other episode with the other guys on the action shooting team, the equipment, the guns, everything are yours. You have to supply all of that. So you have to now take your personal weapons to Europe. And now you have to travel in Europe with your personal weapons, which, uh, or rifles, which I would think is probably not the easiest thing to do. Well, it was actually easier than you thought. So when I got an assignment to Belgium in 2003, I wanted to take my, my guns with me because I knew that there was a lot of this style of, of inter, well, international rifle, like, you know, going on in, in Europe. And I'm like, wow, I'm going to the Mecca of shooting. This is going to be fantastic. So I knew, I knew there, you know, there's a will, there's a way. And around the summer of 2003, I contacted the state department to ask like, Hey, I want to take my, my rifles with me to Belgium. How do I do that? Cause the, the form letter I got for my orders just said, you know, no firearms. And I'm like, that can't be right. There's got to be a way. So I called the State Department and they're like, oh, um, yeah, just just have them sent over with your your uh, household goods. I'm like, are you sure? And they're like, yeah, that's all you have to do. So um, I had uh, uh, I had my household goods picked up. And then I actually, I think I uh, ended up putting in my whole baggage, which to, to the State Department, they said doesn't matter. So the whole baggage is like baggage like you bigger stuff that you want to keep with you up until right before you PCS or, or change duty assignments. Um, but uh, maybe it's too big for you to put in a suitcase, you know, to take with you. So I was, I think I was still shooting matches um, up until like a few weeks before I, I left for Europe. So I, you know, I kept my rifles with me and then I uh, had someone come out to the house and, and in Texas, because I had gone down there to drop my car off and visit my folks and, they they took my rifles. I, I took my um, on shoots, uh, which is my my small bore. It's a it's a nineteen eighteen and a and a, um, and a nineteen thirteen stock. I took a HK USC forty five, which is kind of this bastardization of the UMP that they that they did. Uh, now it's kind of been reintroduced, or at least they found some old stock that they they put back out there. And I took a, um, a ten Foglio or it's EA Witness forty five, which is a copy of a CZ seventy five style, but in forty five. 
and I took a Keltec 32 and a Mossberg Mossberg 12 gauge. So those were the those were the guns that that I brought over with me um, and into Europe. So I fly into Europe and um, my I'm probably on station for about a month, and then I get a notification that my hold baggage had arrived, but um, there was a problem. They they took uh, they found my guns in it, and and they 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 you know they said the gendarmerie, which is like the the Belgian federal police, had confiscated them, and I was like, oh, they confiscated them. Well, the State Department told me it was it was you know totally cool to to bring my guns over here. Um, and obviously I'm kind of like, kind of freaking out now. I'm like, well, am I ever going to see these things again? Which is why I didn't bring any more guns than I did, because I was like, you know, you're always, there's, you're always rolling the dice a little bit. You know, it, I probably would have been most sad losing that, uh, on shoes than anything else. But, um, so what, what ended up happening was, uh, the gendarmerie said, Hey, you know, th- these arrived by the air. So we had to confiscate them. And I said, well, what if they had arrived with my household goods by ship? And they're like, Oh, that's no problem. I still to this day don't understand that, but that's just one of the you know oddities of, of Belgium and, and, and the way they have their, their laws set up. But they said, hey, you know, um, you can um, apply for a, the license to, to be able to, to have these in Belgium. And I said, okay, well, how do I do that? And they said, well, you need to have a um, an endorsement by a shooting club saying that you're you know a shooter like in good standing and that you're not crazy and whatever. So. Uh, at the time, there was a guy who used to be an army shooter, and he was on the army marksmanship unit for years. I think he might have even gone to the Olympics at some point. His name is Dave Johnson. I don't know if you, you know that name. But uh, Dave Johnson at the time was running USA Shooting, which is the governing body for uh, international rifle, uh, Olympic-style rifle in America. And he knew me from my time in Colorado Springs and, and like shooting at Fort Benning and whatnot. And so I, you know, asked him to give me a letter to endorse me to, to do this. And so he sent me a letter of endorsement and I filled out the paperwork, basically like uh, I had to prove that I owned, you know, all the guns. So I had to go dig up receipts and all that. And I filed the paperwork and about uh, two or three months later, um, I was able to go pick up my rifles and, and the pistols. And then um, I was able to start shooting um, at a club. In, in Tongeren, which is like the, the city that I lived in, uh, in Belgium on the Eastern part of the country. And that was, that was a really interesting experience. <laughs> okay. What, why was it interesting? Because they had a bar in their range. And oh. then I have since found that every range in Europe has a bar. Now you're probably thinking like, you know, people would lose their minds in America if, if there was a bar in a range. Although like I understand now in Dallas, it, in Frisco, there's like some fancy gun club there that they actually have like a bar and a cigar lounge um, as part of their facility. Um, but in, in Europe, it's, it's kind of more mixed together. Like you're not actually, you know, the bar is not physically on the range. You have to walk outside into like their lobby area. And yeah, you can you can sit there and, and drink. And the, the catch is, of course, is like you think, you know, you don't want to um, handle a gun after you've been drinking. So they don't want someone to come in there that's had a few and, and they're going to shoot. It's nothing like that at all. Everyone it, you know respects the system and the way they have it set up. But but yeah, you can you can drink after you finish shooting. And I think it's a great concept. And, and if America wasn't so uh, risk adverse, um, I, I think that'd be great to see that um, in America, too, again, responsibly to be able to you know, do that after you're shooting. Um, right. But I, I found that it was common throughout Europe was uh, drinking, uh, I mean, sorry, bars in, in ranges. Um, my wife is actually, I met her in Belgium and she's a teacher. Her school actually had a bar for the teachers. 
which you know I, I'm sure you can imagine that that would cause a lot of uh, consternation if that was in America too. But also makes sense. It does. It does. They yeah. they would have the end like of the day. You might hours. need a drink. Yeah. 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 Um, wow. I'm really starting to like Europe. Yeah. I don't know if I'm going <laughs> to move to Frisco, experience. Texas, or Belgium. Yeah. Or we could trade. So I, I got hooked up uh, with with people in, in the the shooting community out there, and, and in my town, they didn't have any Americans. I mean, the the place that I worked at in NATO in, in the eastern part of Belgium. There were only 18 Americans and there were 200 total international personnel from about 16 different nations. And we, none of the Americans, we didn't live together. It wasn't like a little, you know, like Ramstein, there's like K-Town where there's like all these Americans. It's like the largest uh, mix of Americans outside of America. Well, where I lived, there were none. So uh, my neighbors had never met an American, you know, it just, there was none of that uh, joining together. Um, so Luckily, though, because I was an oddity or, or you know, something new, you know, we're people were trying to gravitate towards me and and ask me questions. And, and um, yeah, I got soon I got linked up into like the shooting league of, of Belgium and uh, started shooting there, training um, several nights a week in Tongeren. And then um, I found a way to Germany. So I found a club in Germany um, that was just over the border, about 45 minutes from where I lived. And, and those folks were serious shooters. Like they were really like into the science of shooting and they were able to help me, uh, improve my game so much. And it was just a, such a great time to go there, um, and shoot. And that actually paved the way for me to go to Germany later with my guns. So do you think because they were so serious, do you think that had any effect on your shooting and improved it any or oh absolutely yeah anytime you're around a good competition you're going to improve as well it's gonna it's gonna bring your game up and uh i, I was shooting great and just you know learning so i i felt like like the time i was at tcu i was a little bit rudderless and that i didn't really have a coach i mean the the tc rifle team at the time did have a coach but he came from a high power background he didn't really understand uh small bore and, and the air rifle and, and the, the nuances of it and so uh, getting getting to Germany and then learning so much more about uh, the sport, I, I, yeah, it, it improved my shooting so much more. And then it reached a point in uh, 2006, I became the first uh, non-Belgian and the first American to ever win the Master of Flanders Prone Shooting Series, which is kind of like the Masters in Golf, but in, in Belgium. So you go to all these different uh, competitions throughout the year, and you have to place within you know first, second, thirds, you know, and, and I guess they they do a rack and stack by the end of the year of like who who had the highest medal count. And uh, I won that for 2006, and then I repeated that. Actually, I take that back. I won it in 2005, and I repeated it again in 2006. Wow, good job! So now, for the audience, can you walk us through what a one of those matches looked like? Yes. So, the Master of Flanders series is is based on uh, prone shooting for small bore. So it's a 22 caliber rifle, and it it looks like a space gun. So I, I brought my my air rifle again, but it does have some similarities to um, a small bore rifle, but, but the air rifles themselves, when you shoot that, they're, they're a little more standardized as far as it, um, how you can change things out. So like my small bore has like this big specialized butt hook that comes on it um, and is adjustable. Whereas like on the air rifle, um, it's only, this is only adjustable like side to side or up and down. Um, and then uh, the sights actually don't have my rear diopter on here, but I use the same rear diopter um, for air, for air rifle and for small bore. And it's a dual polarizer and dual color filter. I like to shoot, um, in yellow, uh, and like when I'm shooting outside and then inside, a lot of times I shoot in orange. And, and you can um, put that in your sight. 
What's that? And you you make the site the color you want. Yes, yes. So you're only allowed iron sights mm. uh, for international style shooting. NRA is something completely different. We can talk about that later. But for international shooting, it has to be iron sights. But you are allowed to uh, to adjust the polarization, which is very important for um, some ranges that you go and shoot at. Uh, maybe the lighting's not so great. I mean, in high school, we used to shoot in gyms all the time and the lighting in there is terrible. And so yes. the, the polarizer can actually help you to, to adjust, you know, to bring a little more light into your eyes. So you're not like squinting, looking like a, <laughs> you know, a murky, a murky target downrange. Um, and really help the, with the contrast with your front sight post too, I imagine. Absolutely. Or whatever, yeah, that, whatever you're nice. using up front. Absolutely. And, and the, uh, the polar, the color filters on it, uh, that's really interesting uh, to, to find, you know, what, what color does your eye prefer? And, and, you know, Sometimes it's based on the time of day, the conditions of the range. And I have, I think, about eight or nine different colors that I can work through. And that's that's really fun because I've been to some ranges where, you know, my standard go-to color just doesn't work. It's like this, I'm not seeing this very well. And you can you can adjust that. And um, I will say wow. that I, I'm very fortunate. An incredible gift the Air Force gave me a few years ago or early on in my career is I had PRK done at the Air Force Academy. Um, again, I didn't go to the academy, but when you're at Peterson, you can go to the, you know, the uh, other Air Force facilities in the area. And at the time, they offered PR, PRK eye surgery because I used to wear glasses. And I came out with uh, 2010 vision. So it, it, at a certain point, my vision kept improving after the surgery. I thought I was going to see through walls. It was getting so good. So, um, <laughs> Like Terminator. So, yeah, yeah. So so I don't have to wear it because some guys wear a uh, monocle. Um, um, so, you know, it's this, this like their prescription Peanut. or whatever. I'm sorry. Like Mr. Peanut. Like Mr. Peanut. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, yeah, it's, it's a sexy sport. Let me tell you, especially when we're in the, the sweatband and all I'm that digging stuff. It. So you haven't turned me off yet. Yeah. Yeah. But, but then uh, on top of that, so I've described the rifle, but the, um, the other part of that is you have to wear a shooting jacket at a minimum. You, you wear shooting pants as well. Um, although now I think under the international rules, they, they might've done away with the need for shooting pants, at least for prone. But um, you wear a shooting jacket and normally you have like a sweatshirt on underneath that. And then you're strapped into the rifle. You've got a sling that connects to the rifle. And the sling, if you've got it set up right, is doing the majority of the work. So about 85% of your hold is going to be coming through, you know, a proper balance of weight distribution between both elbows and then having the sling do it. Because if you're using muscle to hold up that that rifle over a sequence of 60 shots, I don't care, you know, if you're Arnold, your, your arm is going to fatigue and, and you're going to, you're going to start dropping shots. So you've got to let the, the equipment do its job. And then, yeah, you're shooting a, a bullseye that's about uh, 10 millimeters in, in length, which is like 0. 0.4 inches, I think. Yep. Um, 0. 0.4. And Correct. yeah, 0.4. And then you, you shoot that uh, 60 times. You shoot ciders uh, prior to that. But once you go from ciders to, to the match, you can't go back and shoot um any more ciders so so um, so is it unlimited ciders or do you have a certain number and then you declare or yeah it's un, it's unlimited and then you declare okay okay yeah and and then you know you, you asked about the the conditions or the you know the ranges and the ranges in belgium every one of them was was different it, it all had their their own um unique aspects to them and i'll never forget i shot one range that to this day, I still have nightmares about it sometimes. Like it rem reminded me of hell because it was dark. It was like they had uh, some sort of insulation that they had put into the range that, that made it look like a cave sort of. And it was like, wow, the, the material itself uh, just looked like a, like a, um, like soot almost. 
And it was so hot in that range. They didn't have air conditioning. And it was like July, I think was when I did this particular one. And even the lighting down range was like this bright, um, um, like a, like a tan sort of lighting and stuff like that. So just in my mind, it reminded me of hell, especially with how hot it was. Cause when you're wearing wow. the, the leathers and the sweatshirt and all that stuff, um, the, the closest thing I can equate it to actually I'll, I'll steal something from my teammate that just retired. He used to say that it's like uh, taking the SATs wearing a bunch of sweatshirts and a sauna. And that's, that's oh, very board. enjoyable. That's not comfortable. Are you sure you weren't just yeah. shooting in a cave with lights in it? I, I, it may have been, but to, you know, to, uh, or a grotto as they call it over there. It could have been, it could have been, but they had a fantastic beer and, and I, I fell in love with a, a great beer that they had at that particular range called Palm Royale, which is very difficult to find in the U S um, but uh, I remember that part of it. That was the rejoicing part or, or the enjoyable part of it, but shooting up that particular match, which I won, but it was, it was just grueling. Um, it, that sounds a lot like, I mean, high power. That's what I shot. Same thing, you know, heavy shooting coat, sweatshirts, sling the whole nine yards. Yeah. Don't forget to sweat, so man. that, that part. Well, and that's what I was going to yeah. ask him. Glad you said that, you know, when I shoot USPSA in the summertime, I still wear my headband. I know I or sweatband. I mean, I I know I look goofy. You have but, different follicular issues <laughs> than. But the, I don't you know. like sweat in my eye. I I mean, I found I it is either. it, it Listen, is some not of us have conducive to shooting at all. You know, I I'm right there with you, and I I sweat. I've always sweated a lot, so I I I'm like a two sweatband kind of guy at a lot of matches now, um, and I'll I'll try to hide it under my hat. But, but yeah, I, I have to, and, and, yeah. and, you know, you don't like sweat in your eye. The thing that really gets me is if I'm shooting, a excuse me, not an international match, but you know, like, um, USPSA or still challenge or something like that is getting, um, sweat on my glasses. Mm-hmm. That's just a no go for me. So it's I actually, worse. I did uh, a few weeks ago just to show that I, I do different things besides, uh, this international shooting. I, I did a, actually a 5k run and gun down in North Carolina, Oh, wow. And it, it's running and shooting, and there was like obstacles in between. You to put on a tourniquet and carry a 130 pound stretcher for a quarter mile. Yeah, a quarter I, mile uh, with a team. I feel like this is, a, I feel like this is an urban competition here. Uh, no, running through no, the street, shooting at people. Grab it. Yeah, yeah. You may have committed a felony. <laughs> no, no. It, it, it was, it was strange. Like at some points, you're walking on the on, you know, public roads, you know, with your rifle and your gun and everything like that. I was like, North Carolina, uh, baby. Okay. This is, there we this go. is how they do it. I think you were um, on it, a shooting it was a, spree. It was an amazing competition. It was so much fun. Uh, there were snakes, and you had to <laughs> wade through pond water. Um, but I, I was trying to. I had to mentally psych myself up before doing that. That I fully expected that at some point I would have sweat just coming down my glasses and have to work through it. So, I, um, you know, we talked about with winning in mind. I'm like, I'll get through this. It's fine if there's going to be sweat all over my glasses. And as luck would have it, I didn't have one bead of sweat on my glasses. Now I was like soaked, drenched. You know, when I was done with the match, but. Um, yeah, that's an incredible thing. Now I'm actually going to go back and next month they're going to do night ops. So it's a 4K night ops in white light. Um, I'm pretty excited about that. Did that, you did you find out like about insane. this through a through an email? No, a, no. So someone you've never met before? No, no, no. So a, a okay. guy. Um, <laughs> Listen, the, I just want to make sure I'm protecting your <laughs> retirement at this point. <laughs> right, right. I'm looking no, out no, for it's, you. No, it's, no, it's a legitimate competition. And, and the funny thing was, I, I talked a buddy into going out there with me. And, you know, I, I couldn't understand. So there obviously are people that are runners and there are people that are shooters, but those groups don't always mingle together. And you know what I'm talking about? You know, there's, there, sometimes it just yes. doesn't happen. 
Um, and people, my, my buddy that um, I had known through some training courses that I'd been to had been to one um, and he posted about it on Facebook as we all learn about things, right? Uh, earlier this year. And I thought, oh, that looks really cool. I want to do that. And he's like, well, you better sign up as soon as the tickets go on sale because it sells out quickly. And I couldn't understand that. I'm like, it sells out quickly? Like, again, like shooters, runners, not a lot of people in the, you know, that do both. And I'm like, and it was in the middle of nowhere in North Carolina. And I'm just kind of thinking like, why does this, are there really that many fit people that like to shoot, you know, um, that, that would do this kind of thing? And it, it wasn't until we, my buddy and I got down to the site and he's reading off a text from his buddy that had kind of known about this match. He goes, oh yeah, you know, you're, you're down there with all the operator types. And I'm like, what do you mean? Mm-hmm. And I realized Fort Bragg was like, you know, an hour away. Mm-hmm. Okay. That explains yeah. it. Is, yeah, is, is it all becomes clear. That's like similar or like adjacent to like the tactical games that they put on. Um, I have they have a lot those, of those I, where it's yeah. like, oh, I'm going to carry a 60 pound ruck and climb through things that could hurt me and then shoot at stuff. Yeah, well, I mean, it was that. I mean, it was definitely that. You know, you're, you're running for a little bit and then you stop and and they, uh, at least for the team match, you know, they tell you, okay, one person's going to shoot pistol on this stage, one person's going to shoot rifle, um, and and then you know. I remember the first, the very first stage out the gate. Um, my, I had to shoot pistol at, at several different pistol targets, and then my buddy could finally jump out of this truck and start engaging rifle targets. And they're like, "Once your buddy does, you know, he starts shooting, you need to go back to the truck and pull this body out of the truck. It's like a big, you know, like um, dump, dummy or whatever, and drag that, you know, thirty feet this way. And then if your buddy's still not finished shooting, then you can help him, you know, engage those targets. So right out the gate, uh, they're already, you know, smoking you and, and you're working hard. It's it was great. It actually sounds super fun. Was this a T Triple C class? Is that really where you were at? No, no, no. Okay. Um, it, it's a it's a, a company called The Gun Run, um, and I think their their website's like thegunrun.us. This is not an endorsement, of course. Um, and not you can find out, um, you know, when <laughs> they've got other matches coming up. And and my buddy, uh, once we had finished the match and we we're driving back home, he starts, you know, kind of looking into it a little further. It turns out there are gun runs throughout the nation there's like a whole community of people that do this we even found out about one in michigan like in february or march that's um that's that is red dawn uh themed yeah yeah but i'm thinking like michigan you know and 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 the winter no i'm good i'm good see now you said that i will absolutely dress like patrick swayze and go do that (laughs) don't even care i'll do horrible i have a shirt that says that it's an american flag and says i don't do cardio because these colors don't run <laughs> um, but I'll still do it. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I will say for that for that match too, uh, something that unique my buddy and I did because we thought a lot of people would be running ARs and, and most did is that uh, I ran a Belgian FN FS two thousand, which is the, the bullpup. I sorry, I don't have it handy here to show you. And my buddy ran a CZ Bren two, which is pretty new on the market. So uh, we we were determined to, to try and run something different um, out there, and I will say that the FS two thousand performed uh, beautifully. That that shoots. Uh, what's the caliber? It's five five six. Okay, so it's it's standard rifle now of the Belgian military, so okay. it had to be you know a, a, a NATO caliber. So yeah, it's five five six. I couldn't remember if they if they uh, like not the five seven, but it was like five four or something like that. Well, you're, you might be thinking of the 5.7, which is for the PS90 or P90 and the 5.7 pistol. There you go. And then HK's got the 4.6 millimeter yeah. for the MP7. The MP7, which is yeah. Pretty much unobtainium in the US. Yeah. Yeah. You like, do you like bull pups? I, I do. I do. In fact, if uh, 
so many ranges weren't adverse to you shooting five, seven, you'd probably find me shooting a five, seven pistol and, and a PS 90. I've got a PS 90 as well. And, um, I, it's a fun gun to shoot. The problem is a lot of ranges just don't want you shooting it, you know, because of like, you know, dinning up steel, mm-hmm. um, paper targets, you know, it'd be, it'd be fine. But I, I haven't found a match yet that is like, yay, bring your five, seven out here. In fact, there's <laughs> even a, a local range indoor range here. It has a big sign in front of their door before you went. It's like, no five, seven. I'm like, I guess he had a bad experience with it eating up his, you know, his backstop. I get it. It's a great round though. It is. It is. But, but, you know, to your question about bullpups, yeah, bullpups are, are, are fun. Um, you know, obviously they, they've got a, a stigma when it comes to the trigger, a little, you know, a little mushy or not always the greatest triggers, but I, I was, I was very impressed with how the, uh, the five or sorry, the FS 2000 performed uh, when it went out to that match. And I purposely took it too, because I've had that gun for years but there haven't been a lot of opportunities to take it out and shoot other than like you take some friends out and like, Oh, this is, you know, they all, they call, all call it the, um, was it the halo gun or the starship troopers yeah. gun? Cause uh-huh. the way it looks and all that. But, you know, I was determined to, to actually try it out. And the, the gun for the countries that have adopted it, one of the things that's been unique about it is that it offers, um, really good insulation from the elements. So, You'll you'll find it actually in, in some uh, Middle Eastern countries in use because uh, it blocks out sand or it keeps sand out uh, really well, which um, yeah, it's just a kind of a unique property of it that you don't find in other other firearms. That is interesting. Yeah, that's a good point. I can see that. So, what so about you? Probably your... want to ask me like about Germany, right? Like, how did yes. I move from Germany? Because um, that to to my through the credit of my other teammates that, that had come on the show previously, which uh, you've kind of alluded to this, but we don't get together um, collectively as a team every year and, and high five each other and get to know each other. So when I meet people that say that they're on the air force shooting team, I'm like, I believe you. Uh, that's, Good that's for you. Awesome. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, know, I, I know. Well, the, the biggest strength the international rifle has had since I've been in was about seven folks. And now we're down to two myself and, and one other as of, as of this week with, uh, another guy retiring. Well, he doesn't retire till January, but he's, he's pretty much done. Um, but yeah, we, we don't get together. We don't know each other. Um, and that, that you know, and I, I know that, uh, I think it was, uh, the captain had made a comment about, you know, there's no one shooting in, in Europe really. Um, or it's hard to, and, and, and I would say that generally speaking, that's, that's true. But I guess I was the exception to the rule because I did plenty of shooting in Germany. However, um, I will say that the way that um, I introduced my guns into Germany was a different experience than a lot of other people have had because I already had my European Union weapons firearms pass, which allowed me to go to like shoot competitions in Denmark and Luxembourg and France. Make sure you ask me about France, please. Um, but, um, you know, I was, I was going all around Europe when I was in Belgium shooting. And then when I got orders to go to Spengalen, I was like, well, I'm going to keep shooting, you know, I'm going to keep doing this. And I, I contacted the uh, army provost office that handled like uh, Americans having guns or American military having guns in, in Germany. And I, and I was in talks with him way before I even stepped foot in Germany. Cause I, I wanted to explain, you know, this is what I'm doing. This is what I already have. And they're like, okay, um, well, you'll have to reapply for, um, a German license and then reapply for a European union firearms pass through Germany. Um, but in the meantime, like you're, you're covered because you have, you already have the existing documentation, uh, for these weapons. And so, um, I, I went through the process and I applied. And one of the things that at least at that time, and I can't speak for how it is today. Um, I would imagine it's probably somewhat 
still similar, but I, I can't speak. I mean, this is more than, you know, 14 years ago when I did this, but, um, there was a requirement at the time that you had to shoot in Germany uh, 12 times in one year. And at the club, you would have to go to a club and basically use like a club gun to shoot. And then you could um, apply for your German weapons pass. Once you had those 12 times like stamped in a little book and all that. Well, because I'd already been training in Germany when I lived in Belgium, I went to the club I've been shooting at and they're like, yeah, we'll stamp a book for you. You're here every Tuesday and Thursday night, of course. So that was great. You know, we, we stamped the book um, covering all the times I'd shot in a, in a year's period. I applied for my paperwork through the German government and then, then I got my German weapons pass. And then I also got my um, uh, European Union farms pass through Germany. So that's how I ended up doing that. And they're so what, efficient, the Germans. Yeah, yeah. And so and then I just kept <laughs> shooting in Germany. I found a little club uh, near Spingdalem that I'd shoot at. And um, it, 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 there is a lot of confusion about that process. I almost had a boss try to get me arrested because, oh. um, well, you know, when I, when I moved over, because when I moved over, I got detailed to six months uh, to a task force at Ramstein. And that's where I was applying for my paperwork when I was at Ramstein. And uh, there, had, there was a requirement on the army paperwork that would go up to the German government that said that the, the first 05 in your chain would, would have to approve. Well, my boss, Megas Bengalam, was an was an 04, so he, he wouldn't have worked. So I was I was happy of like, well, I have a boss in this task force that's an 05. And so I um, sent my paperwork up to her and I, I put in the email like, hey, this is the situation. And I've been coordinating with the Army Provost Office. You know, I've, I've had my guns in Europe for four years now. I'm just basically just transferring the paperwork to, to Germany. I, I thought I had logically laid it out. And I'd met this, this boss a few times. So I, I thought she was I thought she was cool. In retrospect, I probably should have, you know, um, really kind of like eased her into it. Like, you know, sat down, had some coffee and explained to her, like, this is, this is what I'm doing or whatever, because she ends up giving it to, uh, one of her folks that works in the front office. And, um, I don't know who he called, but he called some, some German police official that he knew. And the German police officials like, no, you can't own guns in Germany as an American. It's impossible. It's, it's, it's forbidden. And so, that's They're all both. her guy channeled back up yeah. to her was that, okay. Um, yeah, this, this guy, this, this, this guy is, you know, illegally bringing guns into Germany. And then she ended up calling my boss at the time and saying that, Hey, this guy you put on the task force, he's, he's smuggling guns into Europe. You, you, it's, he's your problem. You got to take <laughs> oh care of him. God. And I, and Interpol so, calls. Yeah. Yeah. So, <laughs> but my boss uh, at the time back yeah, in Spingdalem, yeah. um, he yeah, was very, yeah, he's always yeah. very relaxed. And even to this day, and he called me and he's like, Hey, um, are you smuggling guns in, into Germany? I'm like, no. Cause I, and, and I, I've spoken to <laughs> no, him really? and left and told him, you know, I'm there for a shooting team. I've got my guns here and I'm going to file for the paperwork and all this. So he, he knew what was up, but he, he just starts laughing. He's like, yeah, well, I just got a call that you're smuggling guns into Europe. And I was told you're my problem. So I was like, no, sir, we're, uh, we're good. So he, he was able to explain to my task force boss that, you know, you know, everything I'm doing is legitimate and uh, I didn't have to go to jail. So. Wow. That would have been awkward. <laughs> well, it, it was awkward when, you know, I'm, I'm on that task force for like, you know, a weekend or whatever. And, and the, the commander there is already trying to get me arrested. So, Yeah. Friends forever. I do hear they serve beer in German prisons, so. though. They just might. They just might. Probably not the good stuff, though. Yeah. Yeah, but even bad German beer is better than, like, Coors Light. <laughs> right. Not a sponsor. <laughs> yeah. At all. At all. Anyway.
Yeah. Um, when I was in Germany, I, I was training. Well, I was I was shooting equal amounts of like air rifle and and uh, uh, small bore and spe- specializing in prone. I mean, I did shoot some three position. I did three position in college. I did three position in high school. But as you get older, like you just don't have time to train adequately three positions anymore. So I, I've specialized in prone. But I actually qualified. I became the first American to ever qualify for the German Nationals in air rifle in two thousand nine. But uh, as luck would have it, the actual date of the uh, Air, or the German championships that year happened to fall on the day we got my wife and I got married. So I wasn't able to shoot that. I feel like she would have understood. Yeah, I actually, yes, I'm right. It was the date. It was the day after our wedding, which I would I knew I would not be in any standing the day after my wedding uh, okay. um, to uh, handle a gun. So I mean, you've done all that training in European places where they have beer afterwards. Come on. Come Fair on. enough. Fair <laughs> enough. Yeah. But he usually I, I drinks the beer after he shoots, not before. That's, yeah, I think that's again, the, the difference. You know, listen, here. Logic does not apply here. Yeah, and that's the other thing. Like you're smuggling in like an air rifle. <laughs> were they really worried that you were going to take over the German government? Was that like, oh, be careful, this American is oh. bringing this little pew pew? Like, well, well, you you joke about that, and, and that's something too. Uh, to the point, I, I'm glad you mentioned that about um, shooting in Europe, especially if someone were like in the military that wanted to shoot. At least in Germany and in Belgium, you could go there as an American American military and you could shoot um, air rifle or air pistol and you wouldn't require a license. In fact, um, the competition style air rifles and air pistols that are out there, um, well, it's probably not going to come up in the, in the camera there, but there is actually a little F mark right here that's uh, on every air rifle and air pistol that's used in uh, international uh, shooting. And what that is is a, a, a mark from the German government or requirement by the German government that says that that particular air rifle or air pistol does not exceed um, some standard feet per second that they would classify as a firearm. Okay. So you can you can have an air rifle or air pistol and you can be out there training. Um, so that that isn't that is an option for someone that if they did want to, you know, do shooting sports, they could do air rifle or air pistol uh, while they are stationed in Europe. However, what you just said, um, I found out at the time we had a, a guy that was trying to get on the Air Force team that had shot uh, air rifle, uh, like in high school, I think. And he, then he enlisted, came in, he got stationed in Italy and he was sending me messages while I was in Europe or what, when I was in Germany and, uh, telling me, um, how he was doing. He was going to a local club to, to, to train, but he couldn't possess his own air rifle till he'd been shooting air rifle uh, for like a full year in Italy because the Italian government had different thoughts on air rifles and air pistols, and they considered them to be firearms like anything else. And so he was very restricted and uh, even what he could do there. I wonder why that is. Well, every European country has their own, um, you know, unique requirements, right? Um, I thought they were a union. Well, and, and that's why, like, what I had, the, the European Union um, uh, weapons pass uh-huh. allowed me to transit, like, you know, said so Denmark and Luxembourg and all that um, without uh, without issue. But um, if but, you... But if you, you wouldn't be able to necessarily go to Italy then, would you? Well, no, because they're part of the EU and I had that weapons pass. Uh-huh. The EU, rec- Italy would recognize that EU pass. Oh, okay. But but if I had, if I had flown into, or if I had got stationed out the, out the gate in Italy, um, I would have had to you know, go through that whole, that whole process oh, you know, okay. to, to prove myself. And, and um, yeah. I think they have good food. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I guess and it was I, better than, I guess it was better that you got stationed in Belgium to start. It was, it was. And, and again, it's just like, I was lucky. I was lucky. So it, 
I think that it is true for the most part that it is very difficult um, as an American to shoot um, in, in Germany. But but there were Americans like at Ramstein, especially like civilians that had been there for years that, that had their weapons passes and and shot plenty. Um, and then sometimes you can even own stuff in, in Europe that you could not own in America. I will never forget when I went to Belgium, you could buy a World War II Thompson full auto machine gun for 800 euro. Problem, of course, being you could never bring it back. I wouldn't right. care. <laughs> guess right. i'd never be going back <laughs> yeah it's fine but so how- but that that was when i moved to belgium and in around 2005 or six they had a um some crazy guy do do a shooting somewhere and then they be, suddenly became a lot more restrictive um on their um on the requirements in fact it, at one point i had to have a letter from our security forces saying that um, I wasn't um, psychologically unstable that I had to carry with me when I would go shoot. When I was in Germany, I had to go back and shoot matches in Belgium. Wow. And I had to produce that and say that. I'm now, okay. how long did it take you to, once you got past the not getting arrested part, how long did it take you to get your paperwork for uh, your German EU card? I, a month or two. It wasn't bad. It, it came pretty oh, okay. quick. Yeah. Okay. The, the only thing that efficient. was weird, I'm sorry. They're very efficient. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> the, the only thing that was weird about, you know, you talked about European countries being a little different or why is one way or why is one another? Well, I had applied for a German sports shooters license. There were two types of uh, gun licenses in Germany. There's a, a, a sports shooters license and there's a hunting license. And I had that Keltec 32 and the Keltec 32 was perfectly legal in Belgium, but in, in Germany, under the sports shooter's license, it wasn't legal. Uh, it, it was only legal under a hunting license. And it had something to do with like barrels under three inches. Uh, you had to have a hunting license to be able to possess that. So I had to, this was weird too. I had to work with the, the provost marshal office because I'm like, well, I have this pistol. I didn't know that it couldn't be registered in Germany. Um, and so the provost marshal's office, uh, one, I, I scheduled a trip basically back home to visit my folks. And the provost, uh, yeah, provost marshal's office, uh, the representative came with me to the airport uh, with his paperwork to saying like, hey, you know, he, he thought he was registering this or that he could register this in, um, in Germany, but it's not, not possible under the laws here. He did have it legally registered in Belgium. He's just going to fly out with it and leave, right? So get it out of the country. Um, and of course, as luck would have it, when we get to the airport, they don't want to see any paperwork. They're just like, oh, you got a gun? Okay. Is it locked up? Okay. And it it went away, but I'll, I'll never forget, you know, the, the poor guy traveled with me like at five o'clock in the morning to the airport uh, to be my representative to make sure I don't, you know, get in trouble or something like that. So, and then I got my little Celtic out of Germany. Well, shout out to that guy. Yeah. Yeah. He was really cool. Unfortunately uh, he was within a couple of years of retirement. So I have no idea, you know, who, who runs that program or again, what even the current statuses are uh, in that, in, in those countries for, for how to, you know, to be a sports shooter. Um, I will say that, uh, was it about four or five years ago? Uh, I went back to Belgium and my old club in Germany uh, put up a notice that they were having their annual, like, um, uh, well, I, I guess it's like foreigners shoot. Like they used to have like a, a match for, for non-Germans every year. And I knew that match was going on right when we were in Belgium. And I was like, but I, you know, I was like, how do I get my rifle over there now? That'd be probably a really cumbersome process. Plus we're just trying to come there for vacation. So, um, the, the club was cool enough cause they remembered me. They're like, well, Hey, just bring your, 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 your leathers and you know, all your other gear and leave your rifle at home and you can borrow a club rifle. So I actually got to go back and shoot, um, a match in Germany about 2015 ish timeframe, um, you know, using a club rifle. And that was, that was awesome. 
Did it shoot as well as your gun? It didn't. It didn't. Um, but it was just, a, it was a fun experience. Uh, the, the thing about small bore, you get so in tune with, with whatever you're shooting or the, the rifle that, you know, that, uh, you primarily use and you just really learn how to, to fine tune it, uh, for you, uh, to, to make it, uh, yes. you know, the best that it can be. And, and I will say that in subsequent years, even after I left Europe, I've just learned so much more about the sport and I, I've gotten so much better at it. And I'm just, I, I look back, I'm like, if I knew the things that I knew now, um, you know, back then I'd, oh, I would have been, been slaughtering them left and right at the matches. I mean, I was, I was doing great. I was, I was winning lots of things when I was out there, but, um, it, yeah, it's just funny the things you learn and, and I will credit, uh, cause it's internationally legal right now. Uh, it's legal for NRA matches too, which is primarily what I've been doing stateside. Um, but I have a, um, like a zero pulse, uh, sling that I use and, uh, it's, it's amazing. Uh, Mech makes it. Mech is like a big um, specialized international gear uh, uh, manufacturer, and that that sling. I, there's just nothing else like it out there that I've ever seen. I mean, there's like zero heartbeat coming across my sling, and um, there's there's been times like in matches in years past where maybe I'm nervous because I had to rush or something like that, and you get in position, and you start shooting, and you can see that you know the rifle going bounce. up there, but yeah, you see the bounce. But with the, with the zero heartbeat sling. Um, it's, it's, yeah, it's very minimal. It's amazing. So how, how did they accomplish that? Uh, Science. if I had it handy, I'd, I'd show it to you, but basically the, the way they have it is, um, the cuff that goes around your, your sleeve, there's, there's like a spring and, and a, um, a connection piece and something about that spring and connector, the way it's designed to the rest of the sling just allows it to be, um, to, to work in that capacity to, to not induce any heartbeat. Cause that's, that's one of the things too, I, maybe I should have explained is that the reason that you wear the, the specialized jacket and, and, and uh, the sling and, and, you know, have the special rifle and all that is designed to provide um, the best possible shooting that you can do. Right. And your body's always in a constant state of motion. Even when you're standing still, you've got your heartbeat, you've got breathing, maybe jitters, whatever. And that heavy jacket and the glove and all the other gear is designed to, to dampen the effects of that from manifesting themselves upon the rifle. Yes, absolutely. That's the, why you wearing a sweatshirt underneath there. I would have to finagle my, I'd have to find that sweet spot on my arm for my sling to minimize the chance of seeing that heartbeat is the yes. farther out you go. I mean, when you're at a thousand yards, the last thing you want to see is this. Yeah, absolutely. That's not a good thing. And, and for high power and, and for NRA matches, you can get away with wearing, you know, whatever sweatshirt or sweatshirts you want uh, when you shoot, but for international, it's very um, regulated. And so like, actually I can only wear like, uh, I have like a special shooting sweater made by Moosh that, that I have underneath my shooting jacket. And even that it matches, they bring out the calipers and they're like checking the, the thickness of it. I can't put another sweatshirt on top of that. But when I go shoot NRA matches, it's game on. You know, I have a sweatshirt on, I have a moose shirt on top of that. Uh, it really helps you fill in the jacket and it helps with, with the performance. But again, that's just the disparity between uh, NRA small bore and, and international. Which it's that scene in just, Friends where Joey puts on all of Chandler's clothes <laughs> and it comes and he's like, I'm not wearing any underwear. Yeah. I, I mean, I, you know, I've heard jokes about it, like some of the things that you can get away with on NRA matches. I mean, it can't parry, um, you know, every few years you hear somebody gluing themselves to their, their prone mat that that's legal. You can do it. Yeah. Someone's going to peel you up off of it when you're done. But, you know, it's you, there's there's all sorts of things that they're just looser with the rules uh, for NRA matches than uh, compared to the ISSF. But that, you know, 
the problem with the sport, I would say that at least in America is that because we have so many other types of shooting available in America, the USPSA, the IDPA, IPSC, um, still challenge sub gun matches, you know, all this stuff. Um, we have so many people that, that get into the shooting sports that gravitate towards those things. Cause they, you know, they're fun. I get it. They're, they're totally fun. And they're, they have a low cost for entry and they don't require um, a lot of specialized training just to, just to hop into. And whereas the international style shooting outside of high schools and, and collegiate fields, um, you just don't see a lot of people doing it because there's a substantial uh, dollar amount um, involved mm-hmm. out the gate. If you're, if you, if, you know, especially if you just try to like fall into it, unless you have a generous club that lets you loan equipment, it's, it's very hard to get into. And that's why the, the air force international rifle team is, is so small now. Um, and, and likely, you know, it could, could, could go away um, in the next few years just because we've had people contact me um, or me or even my predecessors about uh, wanting to get on the team. They shot in high school or they shot at the Air Force Academy or in college and they're like, hey, I want to shoot. And when I explained to them that uh, our, our budget is less than $10,000 a year and that we're not going to be able to buy them um, equipment, especially can't buy them a rifle or a pistol, um, that they're going to have to come up with that money on their own. If, if they're just getting started in the military, you know, dropping five grand on all the gear that you need just to be minimally competitive is, is kind of a, is a big feat for most people. And I can understand that. So it's, um, yeah, it's this international style of shooting is just, is largely just going away in America. Um, cause again, people gravitate towards the kind of the sexier sports. And whereas when you go to Europe, um, because guns are a bit more regulated, people really only have the options of falling into the Olympic style of shooting. So when you go to like a shooting range in Europe, chances are it's going to be like a 50 meter range or a 10, 10 meter range. And they'll be shooting a rifle and small bore and pistol and, and whatever. It's just more of a barrier to entry here than over there. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So it's, it's kind of, it's kind of flipped, uh, in a way, but then, you know, I, I hear people, they go shoot, um, uh, IDPA and, and, um, uh, well, practical shooting type matches and stuff in Europe, like big international matches. And I, I, I don't know. I, I don't know how people, I I'm guessing that, you know, there's, there's probably some small clubs, out there doing it. And, you know, Switzerland obviously is different as well. They have a lot of different types of shooting more akin to what you would find in America. So I could see that being more common there, but um, a lot of the shooting that we do is, is stuff that's just not allowed. In fact, there's even calibers in Belgium that are considered war calibers that you just can't own that you could own here. It's yeah. Well, and, and we had a Canadian couple on that we shot USPSA nationals with last year. And they were saying that there are some countries where nine millimeter nine by 19 is illegal to have. So they'll shoot nine by 18 or nine by 20 yes. or not, you know, uh, yeah. just a slight variation uh, because they're not allowed to have that caliber. Right. So it's definitely different in other countries. Yeah. Or they'll shoot their 38 super comp or something like that. Cause it's right. not the, right. Yeah. The war caliber. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's why I can't go to Europe because, you know, my war caliber. <laughs> well, you know, when, when I, I was in Europe for Sorry, six or seven years and, and uh, except I met my wife there, um, I love Belgium. I love going back. And at a certain point when I left Europe, I was like, I'm, I'm going to retire back here. You know, this is where I want to be. But um, yeah, I've definitely since that time accumulated uh, many more guns um, that would, would I could never bring over. You know, and, and we so would I'd be happy to rehome them for you. I, I bet you would. I whenever bet you, you would. want. 
In case you have a boating accident, just let <laughs> right. us know. <laughs> right. Yeah. Of course. Right. Yeah. Team players is what we're called. Uh, I see. Yeah. <laughs> Unselfish. So, so a little bit on the personal side, is your wife Belgium? She is. She's Belgium. No, Be- yeah. Belgium okay. is a country, Dave. I know, but you know what I mean. Yeah, <laughs> I'm just yeah, and she's from the so Belgium is, is Belgian. unique in that it's yeah. um she tall? She's fairly tall. Okay. Like five ten, five eleven. So five, I'm seven, not quite five there. foot sixteen like you. Right. Yeah, yeah. She's not that tall. But uh, okay. And and you know, to uh also say that uh, the very this was kind of rude not rude, but this was wrong in retrospect, but um there was, I found a place when I was in Belgium that, uh, this guy that ran it, his name was crazy Eddie. And you can, you can Google him. His name's like Eddie Van Open, I think is, is what it comes. No, maybe it's not Van Open, but anyway, um, it's, it's in a a town called, um, Zoltigum and which literally means like crazy man's hand. But, um, it was right next to a police station and he had a range that you could go there and, and shoot machine guns. And like no one at work, I found out this, this guy from someone in, in the shooting community in Belgium and went to <laughs> work one day and was telling people, was like, we can go there and shoot machine guns. And I got people from, you know, again, 16 different countries. Like you can, no way. And I'm like, that's what I'm hearing. I'm like, we just show up. And, and, and so we went as like a, one day as a, um, as an office or like the people that were interested in, in NATO uh, traveled with me out to this, this range. And that was the first time I ever got to shoot um, a, um, a M249 in an indoor range, you know, belt fed and everything. Wow. Um, and then wow. he had Uzis and MP5 and Thompson submachine guns and, and you could shoot all this. And I brought my wife with me. She was my girlfriend then, and she'd never shot before. And so I was like, if I, I was thinking to myself, um, Oh, the, um, the things you think when you're young. But I thought, you know, if I could ever shoot my first gun ever, it would be, you know, like it would be something in full auto. And I'm like, I want you to shoot an AK-47 in full auto for your very first like gun experience. And uh, she did it. And like, she, she didn't think anything of it. And, and you know, it was fine. It's just, in retrospect, I'm like, that was stupid. Why would I? That have- was only going to go one of two Start ways. Small. Either Start really small. good or horribly wrong. <laughs> yeah, right. yeah. Well, I, I explained to her that, you know, like, you know, you don't want to hold it down, you know, just fire a few and let off, fire a few and let off. Okay. Um, and, and she did fine with it. But yeah, just in retrospect now, I'm like, what was I thinking? Like, why would I do that to somebody? How I know she's a really, really cool lady. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, and, at that time, like, in subsequent years, she might shoot here and there. Like when we go visit friends somewhere and they have some guns and we want to go out and shoot, but she didn't really do a lot of shooting with me until I think it was until we moved to South Carolina. Yeah. South Carolina. Um, she started coming out to the range with me a bit more. And then when I got to Georgia and started doing, um, the USPSA and, and the steel challenge type stuff, um, she, she was kind of getting interested she definitely liked coming to those matches more than small bore matches. Cause I will tell you a little secret about small bore matches. If anyone ever asks you to come out there with them to, to watch a small bore match, don't go. It's like watching paint dry. It's so boring because someone's in position and they're never moving, right? This like they're moving, shooting, or, I mean, sorry, they're just moving their arm, loading, shooting. It's just like, you know, again, it's like watching paint dry. Even I find watching uh, small bore shooting just boring. Unless it's like the Olympics and it's the finals where they got everything televised at once and you can see like how people are doing you know, neck and neck. But um, but the qualification stages and all that, it's so boring to watch. Whereas obviously, you know, the more action style shooting is, is interesting for spectators to watch because you're moving and shooting. Some targets are falling down and uh, she liked that. And then I, I talked her into actually shooting with me. So she's been competitively shooting with me, at least on a steel challenge in USPSA for the last uh, two or three years. 
I can tell not you from watching paint dry. Yeah. What's that? Yeah. Not, not watching the paint dry. Not watching the paint dry. Yeah. Yeah. Well, she told and me you know, again, you. she's like, this is so much more interesting to watch yeah. than your small bore stuff. I'm like, well, it is. So. Yeah. I took my family to a high power rifle match and they pretty much abandoned me. So. Yeah. yeah. I can see that. I can see that. <laughs> Same were thing. They, were they Same problem. By the end of it? They were and they hated me. I, uh, sounds about right. So, sounds about right. Yeah. Until I got my oldest, I handed him my data book and my scope, uh, my spotting scope. And I'm like, here, just every time I shoot, put a little tick mark where it's at and write some stuff down. And then he's like, oh, okay, cool. Fine. I got something to do. Yeah. You give him an activity. Yeah. Exactly. That makes a difference. It does. His, his young men are very good shooters, by the way. Awesome. It's annoying. Now, how, well, it, that's how long, important, I think, to carry on that legacy, to carry on uh, the shooting tradition. Yeah, they're not shooting now, unfortunately. Oh, Disappointing. Well. But maybe looking back. Now, how to long it. were you in Europe consecutively? About six or seven, no, wait. six years. Six years in total. Now that's that's not normal for someone in the military, is it, to be stationed overseas for that long at one time? Well, it, the NATO assignment, I think, I extended for a year. And then I went to school for six months while I was there. And then when I came back and then I PCS and then I was spending on for another two and a half years. So it, it's possible to, to extend um, in some cases. And uh, on the enlisted side, you could stay for years and years. Um, people find all sorts of ways to, to stay over there. Must be. It, well, it's obviously different than in the Air Force. So, I mean, most <laughs> most of the guys in the Marines were looking to get out of Okinawa or Korea, wherever they're at, and back to the States as quickly sure. as possible. So, sure. Totally well, different. and there's also a game stateside, too, that you can do, um, at least on the enlisted side, where you can almost homestead at a certain location stateside. And then if you want to keep staying there, you just do like a remote to Korea for a year, and you come back and you could stay for, for many more years. Some people find that, you know, the, the, the choices they want to make, uh, especially if they get kids in school and things like that or roots in the community. Um, but that's a that's one avenue to do something like that. Okay. Did, was it all air rifle? I mean, did you shoot 22 small bore in Europe when you were over there? It I sounds did. like it's all air. Okay. Yeah. So the, like the, the master of Flanders series, the prone series I was talking about, that was all um, 22 small bore. Okay. And and then so uh, getting ammo then wasn't difficult. No, no. Um, and in fact, uh, that was a new experience. I get to take my guns into England which kind of freaked me out a little bit because um, I went to Ely. Uh, for, at that time, I was using Ely. Now I'm using uh, Lapua um, for, for my 22. Okay. Um, and it just kind of goes on, you know, what works better uh, year to year for what they have uh, available lot-wise. But um, I get to go to the Ely factory and and do uh, barrel testing uh, or lot testing on my, on my barrel. Oh, wow. And um, that was a great experience. It was really interesting. It my European Union firearms pass meant nothing to the UK. So I had to apply for a, a permit to, to come to England uh, to be able to, to take my rifle there. And that was a strange experience too, is because I was kind of sweating it. I'm like, man, I'm taking a gun in the UK and I know the UK's thoughts on guns. In fact, one year when I trans, I was flying back to America for a competition and I transited through um, London, like just a, it was a layover in London. The British Bobbies came and got me and they're like, you brought a rifle over, right? I'm like, well, yeah, but this is not my final destination. And I checked and made sure that this was fine. They're like, well, we're going to have to look at it. 
And so they, they made me feel like a criminal and they escorted me into the stairwell and they brought my rifle case into the stairwell and had me unlock it. And they looked at it. They had no idea what they're looking at. And they're like, okay. And then they closed it up and I locked it and they locked it and then we continued our journey. Yeah. Um, but the first time I went to England with a rifle, um, uh, for the, for the uh, barrel testing, you know, I had my, my, uh, English permit. I had my European Union firearms permit, all this stuff. Um, and it was an early flight into Birmingham because that's where the factory for Ely is located. And when I flew in my, uh, rifle or my, my bag came off the conveyor belt and my rifle came off the conveyor belt. And there was almost no one at the airport, at least where I was at at this time. It was so early in the morning. And so I'm kind of waiting a minute. I'm like, surely there's going to be some customs official that's going to come through here and want to look at, you know, my, my paperwork and all this. Because it wasn't even looked at when I left um, when I left Belgium. They didn't care. Again, they're just like, is, is it in a locked container? I'm like, yeah. So so I'm waiting like a couple minutes. And I'm finally, I'm like the only person standing in the, in the carousel area where the bags are. And I, I just walk out. All right, and, and then the, my contact from Ely is there and he, you know, we get in his car and we drive to the factory. But um, that was so, so funny to me because that day I could have taken anything I wanted into uh, the, you know, the English airport gun wise, um, not just a small bore, but maybe something, you know, because they're very restrictive on what they allow in the country in general. Um, mm-hmm. And they would have had no idea. So that was so strange. And then uh, two years later, I went back and did the same thing uh, or flew back in. And then it was a completely different experience. They are like, some really stuffy guy like maybe wait and then he announces to everyone in the concourse this man has a firearm please wait or something like that you know i'm like oh, oh my lord God. you know you're killing me buddy um and then these bobbies came by with mp5s and they're like they were they were cool they were like relaxed they're like yeah it's fine he's got a rifle here's his paperwork it's good um so night and day difference on um, the two occasions i i flew into england with a rifle well, and it is interesting because their police, they have, it's almost like two separate police services because they have the regular police that don't carry any weapons at all. Right. Yeah. And they have their stab vests. Like they don't even wear bulletproof vests. Yeah. They wear stab vests. Because of the they, knife crime. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and then they have their armed police service, which is like a special division of the Metropolitan Police. Yeah. Which, which is crazy to me. But it, I mean, it's it's very different, obviously. But yeah, that's totally I, true. Um, you know, I told you I'm a big movie buff. Uh, something I, I just learned is is a, just a bit of trivia, really quick. Um, are you familiar with the film Matrix Reloaded, the second Matrix film? There's the uh, the absolutely. Silver Twins um, that were uh-huh. in the film. Um, uh-huh. that are the twins as they're known, um, and they had uh, UMP uh, rifles in the film, uh-huh. and. Uh, Stateside, the, the the promo poster that had them featured had them both with their switchblades because that was another weapon that they had were switchblades. Um, but because of a knife crime in the UK, that same poster in the UK, they the knives were replaced with UMP 45s or UMP 9s, I think it was, because that was seen as um, less fearsome uh, to the UK populace showing a gun because they're not so familiar with that wow. than, than a knife. You know, I thought that was so strange. Well, because yeah, they'll never see those over there. Yeah, but the right. knives. But that knife. Well, they're talking yeah. about restricting the, the the size of kitchen knives over there. Absolutely, that and I'll use that is... as a segue to show um, one of uh, twenty ever imported uh, UMP nines in the United States. Wow! So I need a this... different job. I just need to walk through your museum. I mean, you have, you have like <laughs> a museum of pieces. I mean, I'll pay to walk through and see these yeah. things. Um, is that wow. one of the ones that can go back to Europe? Because if not. 
I'll add another thing to the wall. <laughs> I can put it, you know, somewhere over there. Area. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, the, the UMP9, like if you ever travel to Europe, you'll see it uh, with Portuguese police, Spanish police, some Belgian police um, as well. But uh, the reason there were only ever 20 imported is that particular design, um, no one wanted it in the uh, early 2000s in America from law enforcement perspective. Um, they, they didn't want another 9mm like MP5. They wanted something bigger, like a 40 or 45. So you're more likely to see in the United States uh, the uh, 40 cal variants yeah. uh, and some 45 out there. But uh, that was one of uh, 20 that was assembled from a parts kit um, uh, of something like a D-mail parts kit that uh, Tom Bostic put together. But it's uh, you know uh, genuine... Uh, yeah, German barrel and stuff like that. So pretty rare. So you know it's good. Yeah, supposedly, right? And actually, I've shot that one in uh, PCC uh, for Steel Challenge, and I'm almost as fast with that as I am with um, I, I. My go-to gun for PCC is uh, Scorpion Evo. Okay. And in fact, uh, David, that's what I was running at the the match the other weekend. But um, okay. But yeah, just uh, taking out the UMP9 is just fun because it's it's, a, it's such a rare gun to see. Um, but it, it does shoot really well. Now, how fast are you in still challenge with your on shoots? <laughs> uh, yeah. Yeah. I don't, I don't think that would work very well. And, and you know, that, that's also something, you know, you said about like what, what kind of danger could you do with an air rifle? Well, I don't know what kind of danger you can really cause with an on shoots uh, rifle. I mean, obviously it is a rifle. It shoots 22, but I always joke with people, uh, unless we're getting invaded by, you know, aliens that are like little black discs at 50 meters. I mean, that, that, that gun is useless outside of a, an international shooting uh, environment. But I, I do plan to run on Steel Challenge here one of these days. I have a, a Nylon 66 that uh, was passed down to me from my dad, uh, Winchester Nylon 66. And I, um, I found a company that makes a, a sort of like a speed loader for it. Because the way that, that particular 22 loads is is through the stock in the rear. It has like this little, little um, uh, rod you, mm -hmm. you pull out and you, you just dump the, the rounds in and you put the rod back in. You're Googling what this is right now, aren't you? I, um, I am. Yeah. I, I, so I this, this company made this uh, like speed loader for it. Um, that is like a tube that could, just can quickly drop in. I think it holds like 14 or 15 rounds um, in the stock. And that is a really, really fun uh, uh, 22 uh, to shoot. And so I do plan to, to bring that out at some point to still challenge with that special tube and or speed. It's loader almost like those that. shotgun loaders. Like the speed loaders for like a three gun where it has oh, the ramp. Yeah, so it's, yeah. it's similar to that. Yeah. Yeah. It's like I spring mean, loaded. So it just kind of yeah. shoots them all in there. Like a, yeah, like an injection injection sort of thing. Um, but that, that kind of excited me because I've always loved shooting that nylon 66. I've been shooting it since I'm a kid and I was like, wow, I could shoot this, you know, the rimfire, um, rimfire rifle irons, um, yeah. category and, uh, have some fun and, and honor my dad. And I also honor my dad by shooting his, uh, 1911, uh, Les Bear. Nice. Custom. Oh, I started Les doing Bear. a single stack uh, competition um, for this. And then actually, I, I, I did my first real true high power match earlier this year at the Navy matches uh, in May on Quantico. And uh, I was barred my, my buddy's high power rifle. And I, I found out that I had also signed up for um, pistol matches. And I'd never done that before. My buddy's like, yeah, I think you could shoot your VP9 or whatever you want at those, those matches. But, you know, generally it's service pistol, right? So I, I got my dad's uh, 45 and, and he, unfortunately, before he passed away, he only got like 500 rounds through it. So he never really had a chance to, to really break it in, but it was, it was his favorite gun before he died. And I, I took it out and um, I shot this EIC match. I'm like, this excellence competition. What is this? You know, I can do this. And um, 
as luck would have it, I guess I'm pretty good at EIC because I, I came out um, for the non-distinguished. I took first place and that got me 10 points out the gate towards EIC or my EIC badge. And you only need 30 to, to actually get the badge. So the out the gate yeah. to get one third of the points that I need was, uh, that was impressive. Now I, I wasn't chasing points before, but I, I, I think I'll, I'll you know, continue that and uh, get my EIC badge at some point. There you go. Yeah. Get your distinguished shooters badge. Yeah. Very nice. All right. So you mentioned early. Oh, well, first I almost went too fast. What's the rear sight on that less bear? The rear sight. It's, it's the sight from less bear. Okay. All right. Very nice. Adjusted. Very nice. Patrick, sorry. Okay. And well, and actually, I, I did change out. My dad wasn't running a um, fiber optic on the front, so I sent it back to uh, Les Bear because I, I prefer on pistols if I can for com competition pistols anyway. I prefer uh, fiber optics, so I switched it out for for that. Before it was just a standard post. It looks like it's a green fiber optic. Yeah, I like green. Green is a very uh, nice, bright color out on the range. Yeah, for me, it stands out. I can pick it up a lot quicker. I even um, I have a. Trigicon RMR that I was using before I went to the SRO and it's a green dot because I can pick it up quicker than the red. Absolutely. Yeah. But you said also to ask you about France. Yes. So shooting in France is an experience. Um, they have annually a, a, a shooting competition in the, the wine region of France or where they, where they, they serve or like where they are primarily growing wine. Um, and it, we were going to play, so I'm going to screw up the pronunciation of it. But to me, it looks like Mesnil Su Ogre. Um, and it, it's, it was, yeah, it's like basically they have a small bore uh, range set up that's, that's partially enclosed. Um, some of the ranges, to answer your earlier question, Europe were indoors, some were outdoors. It was, it was kind of a mix. You never knew what, what you were going to get. Um, but uh, in, in the middle of this, this wine field, they had this little range set up. And it's like, a, it was like a four lane deal. I went in there, I shot my match, my, my uh, girlfriend or wife at the time, or then girlfriend at the time, now wife, she uh, was sitting there like, you know, having champagne. Actually, I said wine. It was like champagne region of France. I'm sorry. Uh, the champagne okay. region of France. So um, they were all having champagne watching me shoot. They had, they had like, it was kind of fancy at the time. They had like TV monitors so you could see people, you know, again, watching the paint dry, but it's a little more entertaining when you have some champagne. And yeah. I'll never forget, as soon as I walked out the door from the range, you know, they just thrust a, 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 a little glass of champagne into my hand. And uh, that was an amazing experience. Um, and the, oh, the wow. French, the, the people out there in the shooting community were, were so welcoming and so nice. You know, you hear bad things sometimes about the French that they're they're snooty or whatever. I haven't really run into that so much, but I, I can say I that did. at least our, our counterparts in, in, in Europe or, or in France uh, were very welcoming. Um, they were just so impressed to see, you know, an American shooting and joining them. And it was great. That I mean, was they also a, had a boatload of champagne. There was a ton of champagne. Which helps, Well, yeah. so interesting in case, you know, a little bit of trivia. It can only actually be called champagne if it is from champagne. The champagne. Or yeah. it is otherwise called sparkling wine. Right. Yeah. A little factoid you for you uh, wine nerds out there. Yeah. yeah. Fact check that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. We, when I was uh, in the Marines, we were in France at one point and the French army was running their mouth about something. So we almost had an international incident. Yeah, we, our, our platoon, we were like, I was in a reconnaissance. Good ambassadors. Platoon, so we were, 
we were all ready to throw down. The lieutenant's like, we need to get out of here. <laughs> so I don't even remember what it was about. And I think it had something to do with our rifle. So we were ready oh, yeah. to throw down. Yeah. And I will, I forget the port we were in. Um, but anyway, same thing. They, they definitely had attitudes, but part of that, I wonder is how many ugly Americans came through there like me that gave them attitude first. Yeah. So, so I'm, I'm sure it wasn't a one way street. So food was very good though. Food was amazing. Yeah. Butter makes everything better. <laughs> butter and bacon. You're not wrong. Just saying. Not at all. And they make their own butter over there. You have anything else, Leo? I mean, I, if you just want to start rolling out guns and just putting them across the screen, just so yeah. I know what I'm going to get when you move back to Europe. I, I, mean, I think I'm cool I've pulled out the, the key things. I, was going to, I don't think I've shown my Scorpion Evo, but we all know what that I, looks like. I mean, you know, it's fine. Um, no, honestly, you covered everything. I, I've, I'm just, I'm very impressed. I'll be huggy for a second. I'm just really thankful that you came out and we really appreciate everything that you do. And, uh, yeah, I agree with the things that you said. So, oh, thank you. Yeah, no, this has been fun. Um, Just you know, since we missed Huggy today. Yeah, so. you got to yeah, say no, Robert. It awesome. It's true. You got to yeah. say Robert because he, you know, Robert. Yeah. Coming out. <laughs> and we just—I mean—we're talking about France. So we may as well. Yeah. Right. Yeah. But how long? Actually, uh, I do have. One, how long were you in France for that comp? Like, how many days? I—I think we got there. I think it was like just a, we went there on a Friday night and then came back on a on a Sunday afternoon. Okay. Um. So just a weekend, just a weekend trip. Did you do any movie related uh, trips when you were out there? Um. Not in France, but when I was working on that task force I mentioned at Ramstein, um, mm-hmm. I did get to go do a Hollywood deployment, as I call it, and I went to Morocco for two weeks and made uh, or I, I shot uh, two weeks of footage for a movie called The Green Zone. Um, which it's okay. It's okay. I, I was hoping That's the, this be... is the Matt Damon one that we were talking about before we started. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So um, yeah, they, uh, the filmmakers were looking for folks that could uh, reasonably portray a uh, U.S. military. And uh, they paid me like 700 British pounds a week plus per diem. And I never thought they'd let me leave the task force to go do it, but it was towards the end. And they're like, well, we can't deny you your leave. And so um, two days later I was on a flight to Casablanca and I, um, it was shot in Rabat, which is like the capital uh, of Morocco. And uh, it was neat because I was one of the first um, extras to show up. And people in my hotel just saw me as, you know, some white American guy. And they all thought I was a famous actor. And so I was like signing autographs in the hotel because people were like, autograph, autograph. And I'm like, yes, yes, indeed. Um, so so is, is Casablanca all that it's made out to be? Oh, I, you know... I was a little bit disappointed. I, I wasn't in there for very long. It was basically just a transit city for the airport. But the the thing that always stuck out in my mind about Casablanca was that, oh, maybe I shouldn't say this. Well, it's an observation, right? So I'm okay. not I'm yeah, not dis- I'm not disparaging anything you know uh, about it. But I, I will say an observation that I made uh, was that um, there were uh, dead dogs outside the airport, just like on the grass. I, I guess cars had hit them or whatever, um, and that was. Uh, that was different. I mean, I do. Yeah. I will say, I do know that uh, in Islam, dogs are viewed as dirty animals. So I don't know if that's like an intention. I, I don't know. But like in Nicaragua, 
we have the exact opposite thing where my parents are from. The dogs are so smart that they actually check before they cross the street. They like they look into traffic. Oh, they're trained. So yeah. maybe they just maybe their dogs are just dumb. I don't know. Yeah. They just have stupid dogs. Maybe. Like it's weird. Like the dogs over there different. act like people. They're like, oh no, hold on. Wait. Okay, we're good. Yeah. Yeah. Well, as far as like the, you know, the other experience in um, Rabat itself, I mean, it was, it looked very like picturesque Middle Eastern kind of, kind of, kind of a city. And, and um, it reminded me of like the market area reminded me of the, the scene in Indiana Jones and, uh, or, or sorry, uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark um, where um, he, he's, you know, crossing through the, this, uh, this town where there's uh, like all these little shops and things like that. Yeah, the market. Um, yeah. The market. Yeah. yeah. Carrying it with all the, ba- the baskets and everything. Yeah, well, I wouldn't see that so much. You know, it's they're a little more modern than that. But the, just that style, that the market or whatever, my mind uh, reminded me of that. And then um, it turned out that they'd shot. Uh, I'm drawing a blank here. There's Leonardo DiCaprio film, um, Bodyguard of Lies or Body of Lies. Uh, yes. Yeah. yeah uh, but, Russell Crowe. Yeah. 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 Mm-hmm. They had shot that three months prior to me getting there and they had done such a good job for green zone with the, the CG um, that they, they incorporated in the film that I could barely recognize um, any of the locations watching the green zone. However, when I watched body of lies, I'm able to pick out all the places that we shot at. Cause we used a lot of the same sets. Um, oh, that's awesome. That was interesting. Yeah. Body that of lies. That, uh, yeah. That's, that was a good movie. Yeah. That's where they do that scene in the desert where they circle around them and they yeah. make it so that the, yeah, they can't see them or whatever. Yeah, that that was yeah, that was really uh, that was good. And and to me again, it's just kind of like when I watch that movie now, it's just like a you know nostalgia for Robot. I'm like, oh yeah, I remember all those places. So yeah, it's fun. I know the guy Hussein that works there that gave me my coffee. Yeah, um, the uh, the end. I'll never forget the end scene in Body of Lies where Russell Crowe and Leonardo DiCaprio are talking. Um, that cafe I used to go to that cafe um, almost um, every every time. Well, probably like two or three times a week and have coffee and have breakfast and all that. So I do hear their coffee is amazing. I don't drink coffee, but I hear their coffee is amazing. Yeah, it was good. It was really good. Um, if you catch me a year from now, after I retire, I'll tell you another story about that particular cafe. Cool. So, um, okay. retirement cafe story. Yeah. Yeah. Um, what, one thing I, I wanted to throw out too, uh, just to, to pull it back into shooting is, um, I'm a very, very big proponents of a, a school down in Georgia called, and this is not an endorsement again. Uh, this is just an experience that I had that I'd like to share of a school in Georgia called the Rogers shooting school. Have you ever heard of it? R- Roger Rogers shooting school. Nope. So I, I found out about it through a podcast that's, um, Oh, what's his name? I, again, I should have some more coffee uh, because it's drawn a blank, but, uh, Oh, Masuda, you, I hope I said that right. You know that name. Okay. Uh, yep. he, he, he's run a podcast for a while. I think it was like the pro arms podcast or something. And I, um, previous job a few years ago, I did a lot of traveling. So I'm like always like listening to podcasts and I listened to this one podcast and, they were interviewing uh, Bill Rogers, who runs uh, Rogers Shooting School, and he was like talking about their system. And they were talking about how um, their school, their their program is they they run you through um, every day. There's a five day course, and you take a test every day. And the test can, consists of of nine stages, and you're shooting this specialized target system that uh, they're all head plates, and the head plates are anywhere between uh, seven yards out to about twenty five yards. 
And the thing that really kind of piqued my interest was that the targets are only exposed between a half second to a three quarters of a second. Ooh. And you're, you're shooting like really fast and really rapidly. And this was something that was like, man, I've never done that before. Um, I, I'd be interested in, in trying that out. Um, I remember like when I was a kid, I was wanting to shoot fast. My dad always be like, that's a waste of ammunition. Quit shooting so fast. You know, it's like he, you know, I, I never, I never really had an opportunity to go out and, and do that, but uh, that piqued my interest. And I was uh, fortunate to, to be able to go out to that school back in uh, 2018 I went back again, actually in 2019 as well, but, uh, in 2018, I went out there and, and shot and, um, he, it's interesting that he incorporated a lot of the principles of with winning in mind without realizing he never read the book, like he never came across it, but to, to be able to shoot that quickly, uh, he, you know, he actually gives you uh, pre-course work before you even show up. You've got to read this book, um, that talks about how to do, um, his, his style of shooting. And it's not like pointing and shooting, I mean, you're actually able to see the front sight, um, uh, present itself um, when it when you're um, shooting these targets that quickly, and it's uh, it's 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 an amazing experience. It's something that if I could could I would go back and do it every year. It's um it's it's incredible. And so they have uh, most pe- well, I'd say a good percentage of people that go there don't pass. So he has like a you know like a, a basic level for passing, and then there's intermediate and there's advanced. And uh, there, there's a fair number of people every year that just don't pass the basic course. In fact, there was uh, prior to our course, there was a group of Secret Service agents that had come out and they quit like after the second day because they thought that, hey, this is we can't shoot this fast. Like they, they were too stuck in the ways that they've been taught for training that they, they didn't, um, I guess, go there with an open mind enough to say, think that, hey, we can, you know, we can do this. We can try this this new style of shooting um, to be able to do it quickly. Um, the concepts they teach is also really uh, emphasize headshots. And the reason for that is because uh, if you ever, you know, I'm sure you've done some research, but most, a lot of people, especially a determined attackers can absorb a lot of body shots, but you get a few in the yes. noggin, you're going to take them out they're, You're You're going to, you know, they're not going to be able to, uh, to keep going and, and attacking you as a result. And so he's a big advocate of headshots. And so that's why you're, you're doing all these, these head size plates of seven to 25 yards that, you know, pop up really quick. And you can go on YouTube and, and, and look at the, the course, how he's got it set up. It's a, again, it's a special range that he designs. And there are a, a few places in the nation that, that have those ranges, but he doesn't advocate uh, actually um, going out and buying one of those ranges to set up because it's a very complicated system of pneumatics and stuff to, you know, to get it to work or to, to run the right way. But uh, that, 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 that shooting that week there, that experience, I mean, I shot like 4,000 rounds, nine millimeter, um, throughout the, throughout the course. And, and the course cost really wasn't that bad. Um, I think it's fluctuated a little bit, but for other types of training that are out there, I, I thought it was pretty economical, but the neat thing was at the end of that uh, first week, um, or into that week there, um, all week I'd been, been in between like a basic to intermediate score. Cause every day, again, you take a test and they take your, your top, your top score at the end of the week. And that determines what certificate you get at the end of it. And I used the principles of winning in mind on that very last test um, to to propel me above what I needed to do or propel me to the score that I was trying to get in the advanced level. And I did get an advanced uh, rating uh, out of that school for for urban handgun or tactical handgun. And, uh, you know, basically what I was doing was telling myself, I am the best, be the best. Um, I can do this. You know, I've got this. And I was able to keep reinforcing as I was going along every stage. Uh, coaching myself uh, in a large regard, and that was uh, that was great. That was just such an amazing experience, and I, I love talking about it. And I, you know, I went back in 2019, 
I was supposed to go shoot his, one of his associates courses. Um, his name was, uh, Ronnie Dodd. He ran Dodd training up in Tennessee about an, an hour or so away from Rogers school. But unfortunately, uh, Mr. Dodd, uh, passed away, uh, earlier, well, a couple months ago uh, in an accident. So that school's, I think, I think it's gone, but Rogers school still exists and still going on. And if you ever do want to challenge yourself to find out how quickly you can shoot, um, I can't recommend it enough. It's uh, it's an amazing experience, and you probably could even get um, Bill Rogers on your show at some point. He's he's always willing to talk, and he's got an incredible background. He actually founded uh, Safari Land. Oh, okay. So, yeah. Kind of a big I, I deal. I thought I'd heard the name yeah. Bill Rogers. Yeah, yeah. So he was an FBI agent, and um, he was started uh, learning how to shoot doing uh, Bianchi Cup or Bianchi Cup. I don't know how to mm-hmm. say that uh, matches and all that, and. Um, and he's always, you know, kind of adopted a philosophy of trying to, to learn to shoot better. And he talks about like the weaver stance and how like, you know, people were trying to imitate that for a long time, uh, but not realizing that the, the reason that that guy weaver was shooting that way is because he was actually um, had a physical uh, impairment that caused him to shoot the way that he did. That wasn't necessarily the best way. That was just the way that he could. Since he shot well, people were trying to uh, adapt to it. Um, and he goes through all these iterations of different styles that he's tried. And then he talks about um, his process for, for, you know, rapid shooting, rapid acquisition of the target and talks about how like, uh, you know, films are projected at 24 frames per second normally. And that, that means your mind is seeing 24 images in one second. So you're telling me you can't, you know, quickly get your sights up there and get them good enough. We're not talking like a precision shot, like for small bore, but you know, good enough that you can hit that steel, uh, roughly enough that you're able to get the sights up there and, and make that acquisition, teach your eyes to look at it that quickly. And, um, it's, it's sort of matrixy, right? Like you're shooting a like bullet time type stuff in, in a way, but it, it really works. And, um, it's a, it's a very, very challenging experience. And I, I, I love it. It was it, professionally. That was one of the highlights of my life, uh, to be able to go out there and, and, and do that and shoot well. And, and, um, yeah, that was, uh, that's the one of the because a lot of people know about it. So no, no, not at all. That's uh, very interesting. I am going to have to look that up and maybe reach out. That actually sounds very good. Um, so you've already said it. So it looks like in a year you're going to be leaving the Air Force roughly. Yes. And there's nobody else after you to maintain the rifle team. Is that what you said? Well, we have we have one other guy on the team. Uh, right okay. now. And he is um, young enough in his career that I, I think he'll be able, and he loves, he loves this um, type of shooting. And I think he'll be able to keep with it. Uh, but I, I just, I was to say, just based on my experiences, having been team captain for the last decade and seeing people kind of come and go that um, it's unlikely we're going to get an influx of, of people that um, gravitate towards international style shooting. Chances are they're more likely to go into shotgun, three gun, uh, you know, the action stuff, um, just cause again, the cost for entry is a lot lower and it's just a, an easier thing to, to get into, but yeah. not to discourage anyone. I mean, I, I would love to see, you know, people come forward, even if they just want to shoot air rifle, if they have their own air rifle, um, to join the team and, and keep the, keep the flag running because we, the shooting team itself exists because of the international side. Right. So it was, it was founded back in the, the fifties as, as largely a response to the Soviet union showing up to the Olympics with all these great shooters and, and the, you know, the America was like, well, we got to have good shooters. Let's go to the military. And so all the services uh, set up their own like international teams. Um, the Marines got out of it as soon as they dropped, like um, they, we used to shoot like a, a 300 meter 
as part of an Olympic sport, uh, shooting like, you know, 308s and things like that, 6BR. Um, and that's still 300 meters still exists as a discipline, but it's no longer an Olympic discipline because it became too hard to like build 300 meter ranges. I don't know if you ever follow the Olympics, but most facilities that they build are one-time use. So you, you don't, you don't right. really sell well to a country you want to introduce the Olympics to. If you're like, we need you to build, you know, or square off like 300 meters of land, uh, that you're only going to use one time, you know, for this, you know, Olympic shooting thing. So they got rid of that. And so now it's, um, 50 meter, uh, air rifle, I'm uh, oh, sorry, 50 meter small bore and uh, air rifle are the only things that you see. Um, uh, but, okay. um, yeah, so the Marines got out of it too. Once, um, they quit doing like 300 meter. I think the Marines uh, collectively were like, we're not going to touch small bore. That's not for us. We'll stay with high power. And so, um, but yeah, so air force, uh, shooting team exists primarily again for, to support or to, to create a foundation to basically compete against uh, other nations or, or, you know, adversaries or whatever, um, to show that America can, can produce good shooters as well. Okay. Um, the last question I have for you is I see the one life size piece of Terminator memorabilia or whatever you would like to call it. What are the other two? So I have a life size endoskeleton with the two plasma rifles and a 40 watt range, um, <laughs> uh, on top of us, you know, a base of like skulls and all that. Um, and then I oh, have, wow. a, <laughs> I have a, a life size bust of Arnold Schwarzenegger from the very end scene of Terminator two as well, where his face is like, you know, you see the metal coming through and Half it's, uh, off, it's yeah. made out of a medical grade silicone. So it looks, it, it looks like Arnold. I mean, it's, it's amazing how well, uh, and how far like technology has come across for, for those sorts of things. And, um, they say it's rated to last like 25 years or something, uh, maybe longer, you know, they're not really sure, but, um, since it's medical grade silicone, it'll, it'll stick around. But again, just that they put, like punch the hair in it and everything. And it's got the leather jacket and wow. Yeah. That's pretty cool. Yeah. I love it. It's, it's fun stuff. I mean, it's got two guys. I don't know if that can go to Europe with you again. I, I mean, I'm willing to, to house it. That's so kind of you. That's so kind visit. Of you. We won't even need to write anything up. You can visit whenever you want. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, people ask too, they're like, do you move with this stuff? And I'm like, well, yeah, like the endoskeleton, it actually, uh, you know, breaks down into five boxes that go on a pallet. And I've moved, I've been moving that thing four or five times now across the country. I'm just saying one more time. Wow. Straight to your yeah. house. <laughs> yeah. Straight to your house. Putting that doesn't even there. sound like it'd be much uh, of a drive to move it. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I have a truck. Is all I'm saying. That's so kind of you. Yeah, it would be yeah. very well protected and taken care of, and I'm sure that my five year old would not freak out. I, I appreciate the help on that. Yeah. Um, I, I would be remiss if I if I didn't mention again the uh, the Air Force Wounded Warrior Program. Um, I like to promote that even to people that are already in the Air Force because it's not well known, unfortunately. And it's, it's such a uh, important program for getting uh, folks that have been, uh, whether they're combat wounded or any sort of illness, really, but if they get classified as wounded, ill, or injured, they actually can qualify for the program. And when I started uh, coaching the shooting events for that six years ago, I went into it with the, um, the idea that it was going to be mostly combat wounded folks, and it's really not. I've, I've worked with folks that um, actually got paralyzed from the flu vaccine. Um, Epstein-Barr syndrome, I think is what it's called. I've worked with uh, an, an athlete that had fallen off the side of a hill, and broke his back, um, car accidents, cancer, combat wounded, of course, uh, as well. But it, it's um, one of the things the program likes to say is that uh, not all wounds are visible. 
And that's very true. Mm. You got people with TBI as well. And, and I, I met yeah. uh, one guy that uh, had worked, um, temp- he, he was a pilot or air crew, I'm sorry. And he had worked at some um, site that was used to be run by the Russians out in the middle of nowhere somewhere. And um, this was like several years ago. And he had come back with um, all sorts of, this doctors still aren't really sure what was wrong with him. They think that maybe like the Russians had stored like, you know, chemicals or something at that site um, when they were still using it. And, you know, the effects of that, like later on for whoever comes through, but it, it, it's all, all shapes and sizes. And, and that's one of the important um, things to get out there is because some people that do get classified as wounded, ill or injured think that, Oh, I don't want to participate in the uh, air force wounded warrior program. Cause I'm not hurt enough. I, you know, I'm not injured enough. I don't want to take a spot away from someone that's missing a leg or missing an arm or, or whatever. And that's just not the case. They actually, at, at every camp, they, they group people by uh, injury basically, or injury class. So, a person that is missing both their legs wouldn't run a race against someone that has both their legs. Although with today's prosthetics, the person without any legs probably would run faster. Um, but that's the, one of the important distinctions to put out there. Um, and I just offer that up. If, if someone does watch this from the air forces that they, they must realize that um, if they do have someone, whether a supervisor or friend or whoever that does get classified as wounded, ill or injured, they should work through their recovery care specialist to find out more about the Air Force Wounded Warrior Program and apply for it. They have all sorts of um, different sports, adaptive sports as they call them, whether it be shooting, we shoot air rifle and air pistol. They have archery, they have swimming, they have wheelchair basketball, uh, weightlifting. I think golf suddenly made it into the mix as, as well. I mean, they've got all sorts of sports and they always find a way if you think you can't do something, they find a way that you can. And that's one of the greatest things about it is that I've worked with plenty of athletes that um, have been sitting at home for the last six months, feeling sorry for themselves. Like they never thought they'd be 23 and have, you know, you know, some kind of, uh, disability or some sort of issue and they haven't been living. And this program pushes them through like an introductory camp where they run through a bunch of different sports, kind of find out, you know, Hey, I can actually do all, you know, a lot more than I thought I could. And then they can start identifying if they have uh, hidden talents in certain ways. Um, you know, if they've never done shot put before, they might find out they're the world's best shot person or shot putter, you know, you just never know. Um, but it's a fantastic program. They run camps throughout the, the world now. It used to be just through the stateside bases, but now they actually reach out to uh, uh, other bases uh, overseas as well. And uh, I can't say enough good things about the program. And uh, it also allows me to sort of give back as part of the Air Force shooting team and provide the, the training that, that I've received and experience that I've received to help people funnel that into, you know, finding out about this thing called air rifle shooting and air pistol shooting. And it's uh, it's been great. That's awesome. All right. Yeah. Air Force Wounded Warrior Program. Okay. We'll have to put a link in that or in the show notes for that. So sure. Sounds yeah. good. Again, not the Wounded Warrior Project. That's a charity. That's something different. The Air Force Wounded right. Warrior Program. Yeah. I, so I think the first I hit for Google comes up as the Wounded Warrior Project, but the second one should be AFW2. Okay. Well, we want to thank you for coming on. We appreciate your time, uh, all of the information you shared, and of course, the show and Dell. That yes. was fantastic. <laughs> yeah, sure. <laughs> Thank you very much. Well, yes. This has been a lot of fun. I really appreciate it. Our pleasure. Yeah, for sure. Our pleasure. Yeah, we're like Chick-fil-A that way. It's our pleasure. <laughs> Not a sponsor. <laughs> Not yet. You never know. Maybe someday. Maybe Maybe some someday. Chick-fil-A money. No. Yeah. Take care, Robert. You too. Bye, guys. Take it easy. Until next time. Don't be a little bitch. Yeah.